0: It is a prime ingredient that fuels the fires of imagination. Amid countless eons past, it fanned a spark ignited by a primeval author chiseling arcane petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. This life-giving current once grew papyrus for paper and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. Carried across the land since before the dawn of time, It is the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs, and has since walked on the surface of the moon. Manifesting as a placid breeze, it stirs memories of childhood, or as a turbulent vortex, ripping up the pages of history. Powered by this influence, we dream, love, laugh, hate and destroy. In short, live out our lives. A gust of this disturbance carries the potential to scatter fog surrounding the unknown. Drifting through frequencies of time and space, thin air is inhaled for the first time and exhaled at the last. Don't try to catch your breath.
1: Most certainly, some planets are not inhabitable, but others are. And among these, there must exist life under all conditions and phases of development.
2: Extract from the Journal of Nikola Tesla, circa 1901. Constance awoke with a startle. There, bathed in the soft red glow of the New Yorker hotel sign outside her apartment, she slowly started to recover from the nightmare she had been having. Pulling the covers off of her legs, she stood and made her way over to a chair near the open bedroom window and sat down. The rapid pounding of her heart gradually slowed to normal rhythm and her eyes focused on the gently rustling curtains that danced in the cool early morning breeze. The hotel sign had become less of a reminder to her of the excitement she once felt about being a New York City newspaper reporter and more of a beckoning question mark as to the fate of her dearest love, Nikola Tesla. The New Yorker had once been his home or, oddly, the home of a frail old man she never met, a shadow of the great inventor he once was. Three years ago, almost to the day, Nikola Tesla had vanished into thin air, vanished on the same day that Constance had returned on the Century Unlimited from her trip to Wardenclyffe. Turning her attention away from the window, Constance glanced at the bookcase next to her and her gaze fell upon a scale model locomotive, a replica of the engine that pulled the Century Unlimited and carried it across time and space. The tiny brass model was a gift from Malachi, her friend and conductor while on board the train she had considered it a most prized artifact. Much like the New Yorker Hotel, though, sadly, it was also an ever-present reminder of perhaps the greatest loss that she would ever have to face. Gently, Constance extended her finger and brushed it across the surface of the model. In response, the tiny headlight switched on and shone brightly for a few seconds and then winked out.
3: (sighs) Time to get ready for work
2: as she got up to take a shower she noticed that the air that drifted into the room now carried with it the smell of ozone and rain constance pulled the window down and closed the latch as the first tiny droplets started tapping on the other side of the glass off in the distance across the new york city skyline she saw a bolt of lightning arc down and strike the top of the empire state building even this simple display of nature reminded her of him
3: i miss you So much.
2: The tear fell across her cheek.
3: So very, very much.
2: One warm shower and two hot cups of coffee later, Constance was putting together her wardrobe for the day when she heard a soft tapping on the window glass. The rain was coming down steadily now, but this sound was different than the pitter-pat of raindrops, enough so that she glanced up and saw the outline of a bird perched on the sill outside. Constance put down the hatbox she was holding and walked over to the window. Through the liquid distortion of water pouring down the windowpane, Constance saw that a white pigeon with gray wingtips was there, looking back at her with dark, beady eyes. Constance unlatched the window and slid it up.
3: Well, hello, my beautiful feathered friend. Sort of a lousy day for flying, isn't it?
2: The bird turned its head to one side and looked up at her inquisitively. It was then that Constance noticed a small piece of paper rolled around the pigeon's leg. Gently, she reached down and turned the paper round several times until it was unbound. At that same moment, the bird spread its wings and flapped its way up into the stormy gray sky, quickly disappearing over a rooftop. Constance shut the window and then held the tiny message up where she could read it. It said Robinson Street Railroad Bridge, Binghamton, New York, 10.30 a.m. Binghamton was about 175 miles from New York City, and since there was apparently no way to catch a connecting train, Constance finished getting dressed and then sat down at her desk to make a phone call. A cab ride would be way too expensive, so she picked up the phone and dialed the number of the only person she knew in the city with a car, her editor and chief, W.H. Preston. At 5.30 a.m., she was more than a bit leery of making the call, but deep down she knew she had to be on time regardless of how much moaning and groaning she'd have to endure. W.H. was, to say the least, not a morning person. Typically, he was prone to shuffling into the office around 9.30 or 10, so when she heard the receiver drop, she figured this was going to be interesting. Preston, pick up
3: the phone, please. W.H., stop drooling on your pillow and talk to me.
2: The only response from the other end of the line was Preston's raucous snoring. As luck would have it, Preston rolled over in his sleep and was already halfway off the mattress. Constance heard his body drop to the cold hardwood floor and quietly chuckled to herself as he rattled off a litany of choice words after his head impacted on the nightstand. Walter! Are you awake now? All at once there was a loud tone and a burst of static on the line. When the static faded, Constance could still hear a bizarre and quite unnerving modulation that she felt certain was not coming from anywhere in Preston's apartment. Then, unexpectedly, a voice on the line said,
4: Don't worry, Miss Weathersby. We will make sure that your Mr. Preston is down on the street in 10 minutes to pick you up.
2: Before she could respond, there was a loud click and then a dial tone. There was no mistaking the voice of Mr. Lanther, Constance could feel her pulse racing as she placed the receiver back on the hook.
3: The nightmare. The reverie that woke me this morning. I remember it clearly now. I was standing in a desert and Lanphier was there.
2: As if summoned in response to the utterance of a spell, the giant locomotive rolled out through the doors of some remote engine roundhouse and onto a turntable that would once again spin it like hands on a clock to rendezvous with Constance Weathersby.
0: The future. Dark and nebulous, it holds both the promise of boundless opportunity and the inevitable dread of oblivion. Somewhere between these two opposing forces is the road ahead, said road being anything from a set of rails to asphalt, dirt, currents of thin air, the vacuum of space, wormholes. But then I digress. Point being, How do we all successfully navigate the switchbacks and potholes in our path so that we come out safe and sound on the other side? How do we author that elusive and much-sought-after happy ending? Perhaps the answer lies in what was, the age-old adage. Those who cannot learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Here, then, I present a brief history of the future. Constance Withersby, star reporter for the New York Herald Examiner, has taken a ride down the road ahead, taken it all the way to the end of the line. She has witnessed oblivion. Now, she must, at all costs, find her way back. All the way back to the beginning, with nothing more than a few scraps of paper, several old photographs, and a strange, unidentifiable gizmo to guide her. Will Constance write the story of a lifetime? Will she be able to give her readers the happy ending they all so desperately desire? Only time will tell.
2: Constance pushed her way through the revolving glass doors of her apartment building, and out on the rain-soaked sidewalk to wait for Walt to pick her up. For such a dreary day, there was certainly no shortage of people shuffling through the puddles to hail a cab or simply making their way by, headed to who knows where. Taxi! Constance thought to herself, They all probably have a better idea of where they're going than I do right now. In many ways, This morning had all the earmarks of a little adventure she had gone on a year or two ago. No matter how hard she tried to busy herself with simple actions like opening her umbrella as she stood waiting near the curb, her thoughts kept returning to the phone call she had just placed. In her experience with Mr. Lanfer, he had proved to be helpful, explaining the circumstances she found herself in. Helpful or not, his appearance inspired more foreboding than reassurance. Always dressed head to toe in black, Lanthier seemed to Constance like an artist's rendering of how death might look if he came calling in the 1940s, a suit as opposed to a cloak, dark sunglasses rather than a hood to obscure a colorless face that seemed artificial. Perhaps the most unsettling attribute was his smile, lips curled upward in an unnatural grimace, leech-white teeth, perfectly aligned beneath what seemed to be painted on lips. Constance shivered as the image of him formed in her mind and she took a few steps forward for a better view of the passing cars, anything to give her something else to focus on. A moment later Preston's car rolled to a stop across the street and Constance hurriedly walked over, closed her umbrella and climbed in. Walt's car bounced along a gravel road somewhere between New York City and Binghamton. Constance was a little concerned about arriving on time since Walt treated his precious 1934 Chrysler airflow like it was made of gold, nearly always driving 10 to 15 miles per hour below the posted speed limit. Today, of all days, it would have to rain, Constance thought as she watched him steering close to the center of the road to avoid splashing through any standing water that might spatter mud on the fenders.
3: Walt, seriously, this isn't even your car. It belongs to the Examiner, so why do you drive it like you're navigating a minefield?
2: Preston glanced over at her and rolled his eyes as he pushed in the clutch and shifted into a higher gear.
0: I suppose I should be grateful to have a star reporter who's always in a hurry to get where she's going. We usually beat all the other rags to a scoop. Still, I'm never quite sure if it's our readership or my blood pressure that's going up as a result.
2: As the car approached the outskirts of Binghamton, Constance could make out a long steel band of railroad tracks stretching from horizon to horizon, crossing the road they were traveling on. Down the track to the right, she noticed a long trail of smoke approaching. After passing over a small rise, she could see that the road would run beneath the track several hundred yards ahead, most likely the Robinson Street Railroad Bridge. This is it, W.H. Just pull over anywhere. Preston squinted his eyes and watched between swipes of the windshield wipers as a steam locomotive slowed and then stopped partway across the bridge.
0: Uh, wait Connie, what? You want me to drop you off out here, out here in the middle of nowhere? Surely there's a depot around here somewhere. Someplace he could at least have a step up to the tracks.
2: Constance opened the car door and climbed out and seconds later was climbing the side of a small hill, high heels and all. Preston stood up from the driver's side and shut the door, preparing to, at the very least, prevent her from slipping in the wet grass. Pointing to the outcropping of concrete blocks that lined the overpass he blurted out.
0: Try to stay off the grass. Uh,
2: cement wall,
0: Connie. Walk
2: up those. They're like steps. From halfway up the side of the incline, Constance turned to him.
3: Since when have you ever had to point me in the direction of a story, WH?
2: I'll be fine. Turning away and continuing up to the level of the track, she said, Keep the presses oiled, boss. This is going to be the
3: scoop of a lifetime. See you later, boss. I'll be in touch.
2: As Constance reached the edge of the roadbed and walked cautiously across the loose rock toward the nearest car on the train, she happened to glance over at the track out in front of the engine. There, bathed in the soft locomotive headlight, stood Mr. Lanfear, motionless, hands in his pockets, seemingly staring back at her through a pair of dark spectacles. Empowered by a sudden burst of adrenaline, Constance bolted across the last several feet of gravel grabbed hold of a hand railing and pulled herself aboard the Century Unlimited. Seconds later the train lurched forward and continued across the bridge in the direction she had seen the frightening specter who called himself a chronologer. Looking back out of the door she saw that he was now standing beside the track, arm raised above his head in a waving gesture that looked more like a posed mannequin than any real human expression. Although his mouth never moved or opened to speak, Constance was certain she heard him say to her,
4: Have a safe trip, Miss Wethersby.
2: Shaken by the appearance of Mr. Lanfair outside the train, Constance was desperately seeking the comfort of some familiar surroundings. Upon boarding the train, she instinctively made her way back to the Vista Dome car that she and Nicola had shared on the journey to Mars. Climbing the stairs to the upper level of the scenic coach, Constance rounded the landing of the staircase and came face to face with a horrifying and all too familiar vision. There, suspended in the aisle of the Vista Dome was Mars. Constance froze on the landing as she watched the flaming fireball of the doomed moon Phobos streaking toward the orange sphere and slamming into the dusty surface, splitting the planet literally in half. Below this frightening phantasm, laying on the floor of the car was the balsa wood model of tesla's tower the failed attempt to save the human race from utter extinction as the particles of rock dispersed into the room and faded from view constance continued to the top of the stairs and there seated in one of the chairs looking down at a mound of papers stacked on his lap was nikola tesla reaching the top of the stairs constance nearly sprinted the rest of the way down the aisle to the chair where her beloved nikola was seated Doing her best to lure Tesla's attention away from his studies, Constance extended her leg up from the aisle to the floor in front of him. Apparently unfazed, Tesla did not so much as look away from the paperwork he was reading. Clearly disappointed, Constance reached out to place her hand on Tesla's shoulder and to her surprise, his image simply vanished. An illusion, just like the waking nightmare of the Phobos impact she had just witnessed. Then, as Constance prepared to turn away, an even stranger mirage materialized. It was like looking in a mirror, even though deep down Constance knew that she was not standing face to face with a reflection. If that wasn't unnerving enough, Constance could feel the other woman's breath on her face. This was no figment of her imagination, no optical illusion. Perhaps, Constance thought, perhaps none of these images she was seeing, Mars, boss Tesla, were simply apparitions. As she stood looking into the eyes of her own doppelganger, her blood ran cold with fear. She wanted to turn and run, but something, some manifestation or unseen force made her stand her ground and utter one word aloud. Uh, Constance? Her duplicate blinked as if in response and then furrowed her brow thoughtfully. I think so, and you?
3: Yes, though I have no recollection of meeting my future self during the last ride on the Century Unlimited.
2: The duplicate turned her head away and looked around. Outside the Vista Dome, there were the familiar bands of brilliant light streaking past the glass as the train traveled through a wormhole en route to Mars. I couldn't say.
3: For some reason it feels like I've made this journey a thousand times before. Maybe one of those times the train was running on a parallel track. Maybe we're just meeting ourselves coming and going, you think? I suppose it's as good an explanation as any. Or maybe you're an echo, like a radio signal transmission sent from another time. Either way, I've learned that reality is not a constant aboard this train.
2: The duplicate nodded, and then her expression changed, as if she had suddenly remembered something. Constance watched as she bent down and picked up a bundle of papers on the chair behind her. When she did, Constance could see out the window of the Vista Dome, past the streaks of light where her eyes focused on an object traveling alongside the train. It was Lanfear's Tucker automobile, gliding silently through the glowing wake of the locomotive. All at once everything started going dark. Constance could feel herself falling as she fainted, lapsing into a welcome unconsciousness. Constance awoke on the floor of a Vista Dome car, but apparently not the same car she had been in when she fainted. This car was trimmed in blue-gray upholstery and seemed newer and much brighter, aside from the dark storm clouds and rain outside. Something else was quite different as well. Seated in the chair next to her was another passenger on the train. Fortunately for Constance, it was not some bizarre version of herself. This woman looked quite regal and for that matter very familiar though certainly not anyone that she had ever met before. Constance grabbed hold of the arm of the chair across the aisle from the woman and pulled herself up to a standing position. After taking a moment to brush off her dress and adjust her hat, Constance stepped up on the platform and sat down on the arm of the chair. From somewhere near the back of the car, she heard Malachi's voice call out to her.
5: Miss Weathersby, are you back with us?
3: Yes, Malachi. It would seem that I am safe and sound.
2: From her vantage point, she could see Malachi standing at the foot of the stairs leading up from a small dining area on the lower level of this Vista Dome.
5: Good. That's real good, miss. I'm sorry I wasn't there to greet you when you got on board the train. At the very least, I could have warned you about that last car. We've been towing it across so many years now that time has become very unstable inside. I know it held special memories for you and Nicola, but I'm afraid that by the time we reach our next stop, we'll be uncoupling it to dissolve across the eons. As long as you were not injured by the fall, no serious harm done. Thanks to a little help from your travel and companion up there, we were able to walk you over to this shiny new tesla dome car.
2: As Malachi turned and started walking away from the stairs, Constance could have sworn she heard the sound of children laughing. She saw Malachi roll his eyes.
5: Now that you're awake, I have a couple of additional responsibilities I need to attend to. Enjoy the ride, Miss Weathersby."
2: Constance looked over at the woman seated across from her and smiled.
3: "Hello. I'm Constance." Constance Weathersby."
6: Extending her hand, the woman responded, "Nice to meet you, Constance. I'm Hetty Lamar. I have no idea what caused you to faint in the other car, but I am glad you're OK. I hope you don't have a phobia against riding on trains. <laughs> oh no, I hope not either,
3: Miss Lama. As much as I find myself riding them, I'd be a nervous wreck by now, especially on board the Century Unlimited. I wouldn't be exaggerating to say that sometimes this line can be more roller coaster than railroad.
2: After a moment of awkward silence, Constance continued.
3: I'm sorry, but I have to ask. How and why did a Hollywood movie star end up traveling on this train? Last time, other than Malachi, there wasn't another solitary soul on board.
2: Hetty folded her gloved hands in her lap and
6: leaned her head back against the seat cushion. Well, I was making a picture and shooting on location in New York. I got a call from my friend Howard, back in California, asking me to return right away, and he said that he would arrange to have a ticket on the Century Unlimited for me. The only caveat being that I would have to catch the train several miles out of the city, at a freight loading dock, no less. Can you imagine? My limo driver was hesitant to drop me off there, but of course, you don't question anything when it's been arranged by the great Howard Hughes. Heaven forbid.
2: Constance (laughs) giggled,
6: not just at Hetty's
2: story, but also how
6: matter-of-fact it sounded. I have heard that Mr. Hughes can be a touch uh, eccentric. Oh, Constance, you don't know the half of it. Not just a touch, my dear. Howard Hughes could write the book on eccentricity.
2: Hedy glanced away from Constance at the floor beneath the seat next to her. Before I forget,
6: she said leaning down and reaching for something. Malachi wanted me to be sure to give you some stuff we found next to you on the floor of that other car.
2: Hetty stood up with a bundle of papers in one hand and a small, circular device that was emitting a spinning current of electrical arcs in the other. I'm assuming that these belong to you. Constance realized why her alternate self had materialized and confronted her. She had delivered the postcards. Yes, as a matter of fact,
3: these artifacts are my roadmaps to places I'll be traveling to now.
6: I left them aboard the train last time for safekeeping. In that case, it looks like we'll be companions for a while. If this first letter is any indication, it seems that the Tucker Automobile Plant in Chicago will be your first destination. I'm catching the Southwest Chief at Union Station that will take me back to Hollywood. And by the way, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pry. This stack of envelopes is just so intriguing. I have always been drawn to anything that holds the promise of a little cloak and dagger. As Hetty
2: and Constance sat talking, Constance once again heard what sounded like children's laughter coming from somewhere downstairs.
3: Excuse me for a moment, Hetty. I need
6: to stretch my legs for a minute or two and see what's going on down in the dinette. Of course, Constance, take your time. I just love the rain, so relaxing going pitter-pat up here. Constance descended
2: the staircase and saw Malachi sitting at one of the tables with his back to her, one arm draped across the formica top, dangling a half-empty coffee cup off the table's edge.
3: Everything okay, Malachi?
2: Before he could turn and answer the question, two little girls came bounding into the room, one apparently chasing the other to retrieve a stuffed panda bear that the younger of the two had swiped. Constance continued into the room and sat down behind a table in front of where the girls now stood with their arms wrapped around each other, still fighting for control of the stuffed animal.
3: Ladies, ladies, looks to me like someone's best friend has been taken hostage. Now I'm guessing that the two of you are sisters and you both love each other very much. My question is, what's it gonna take to settle this dispute and return that fine bear to its rightful owner?
2: The older sister turned her head sideways. Listening to Constance as she spoke, her hair inadvertently dangled in the face of the younger girl. Swatting the hair away with the hand holding the bear, she lost her grip on the toy, and it sailed right into Constance's outstretched hand. Well, that was way too easy. Returning the bear to Big Sis.
3: I bet Malachi might consider some milk and cookies for such a wonderful act of kindness. Don't you suppose? Yay)
2: Both girls gave each other a big hug.
5: I'm impressed Miss Weathersby.
2: Malachi said as he opened a small refrigerator door and produced a jar of milk.
5: You got a real knack with the little
3: ones. (laughs) Well, not so much. I just remember what it was like to have a big sister to play with, that's all.
2: Constance watched the girls gulp down their milk and cookies and for a timeless moment she forgot about the uncertainty she found herself in.
3: Oh sure. We used to go at it like these two, but we loved each other dearly. I really miss those times. Always remember, girls, childhood is a magical time, and you are both so very lucky that you have each
2: other.
4: Thanks, Miss Feathersby. You're the cat's pajamas.
2: With that, the girls turned and ran out the door and down the passage, giggling all the way to who knows where. As Constance sat drumming her fingers on the tabletop, she noticed a long, bright band of sunlight stretching its way across the room from the window. Standing up, she slid around the side of the table and walked over to where the sun was now flooding into the compartment.
3: So beautiful.
2: The Century Unlimited was rounding a long curve in the track. And as she watched, the locomotive rolled gracefully into a tunnel entrance that was shrouded on all sides by tall hills covered in dense trees. For an instant, this gorgeous panorama winked out as the Vista Dome car passed through the tunnel into darkness, but then blazed back once more outside the opening on the other side of the hill. In the distance, the sun was setting behind brilliantly illuminated clouds and casting a warm glow on the wide-open flatland of cornfields, grassy meadows and trees. Constance squinted her eyes and focused a short distance down the track where there seemed to be a grass landing strip running parallel to the roadbed. As if on cue, a small, single-engine airplane went soaring across the sky above the airfield, apparently on approach to land. The pilot guided the small plane high over the railroad track in a long bank toward the end of the runway, and as the plane passed by overhead, the wings wobbled back and forth in a gesture of greeting. Instinctively Constance raised her hand and waved back. With a hiss, the train began slowing down and eventually came to a complete stop beside the airfield. Since Chicago was technically the first stop according to the postcards, Constance decided to make her way to the platform between cars and see why the engineer had brought the train to a standstill here.
0: Time. It flows like a stream ever on to some unforeseen destination. Within the eddies and currents that make up this meandering stream are teardrops. Perhaps those of a newborn baby taking a first breath, or of a tired ancient exhaling for the last, pondering a lifetime spent spinning many times around the sun like some vast carousel. We all climb on board this ride, either by chance or by design, never knowing just what to expect. For some, It is wondrous, for others, terrifying. Round and round we go, and when it will stop, nobody knows. Everyone gets a turn, some long, long ago, some as yet waiting, standing in line, holding a ticket that will take them on the journey of a lifetime. Diary of a Time Traveler.
2: The little girls bounded down the steps of the observation car and out across the gently waving field of grass, both giggling and shouting as they ran toward the approaching figure of the Century Unlimited Engineer. Daddy! The man gathered them up in his arms and spun them round and round.
0: My beautiful little girls,
2: he said grinning from ear to ear,
0: I hope you enjoyed every minute of your time spent riding the Century Unlimited. I tried my best to make it a smooth ride, you know. Not too many bumps?
2: No,
3: Daddy, not too many bumps.
2: The girls hugged their dad tightly and Constance noticed a tear form and fall down his cheek.
0: That's good, ladies. I hope it was an adventure you'll remember for a lifetime.
2: For a moment, the engineer looked up knowingly at Constance.
0: Time goes by too fast, even when you're a time traveler. I'm going to miss this so much when they're grown.
2: Constance smiled and nodded her head.
3: I know. You're a very lucky man. Your girls love you very much.
0: Thank you, Miss Weathersby. means a lot for you to say so.
3: Daddy, look! It's Grandpa's airplane!
2: Squirming out of her dad's grasp, she ran off toward a grass runway as a small, single-engine plane glided gently over the train and touched down. The younger girl walked over to where Constance was standing and said,
4: You wait here, Miss Weatherby. I gotta go get something for you.
0: Memories are like a rare collection of long extinct species on display and to be considered in a museum. Like insects under glass, we see things as they once were in life, now long past, and held on the head of a pin to be examined. In our mind's eye, we look back and remember a beautiful butterfly drifting on a gentle summer afternoon breeze. Perhaps we recall a brightly colored flower garden, alive with buzzing honeybees. Standing there, reflecting on a moment from the past, there is an aching, a physical manifestation brought on by the longing to have that moment back, to relive something that is now not much more than a whisper from long ago. A parent tells a child about someone they once knew and loved. Captured inside a glass jar and carefully placed on a shelf in the back of their mind, a memory comes alive as a moment or span of moments is recollected. The act of telling a story brings about another thought, an errant wish that somehow, in some way, This could be much more than just a string of words. If only the past and the present could be intertwined, introduced to each other, and given a chance to share a few fleeting moments in that same garden from once upon a time. Diary of a Time Traveler.
2: Constance knelt down and looked into the face of the little girl and asked, What do you have for me, sweetheart? The little girl reached out with a tiny index finger and pressed it against Constance's nose.
7: Buzz, buzz, buzz.
2: She said laughing before bolting down the length of the locomotive to where Malachi stood holding an empty glass jar for her.
5: Here you are, little one.
2: Malachi said as she gripped the jar and ran off into the grass. Constance watched as the girl opened the jar and stuffed some flowers, twigs and grass inside before giving chase to the numerous bees in the field that were gathering pollen from a blanket of wildflowers that lined the edges of the runway. After capturing several bees without so much as a single bee sting, the girl twisted the lid back on the jar and came running back toward Constance.
0: I'm sure you've heard it said that we should all learn from the past, or that the past can teach us something, a valuable lesson, or something like that. Then again, perhaps the past is truly destined to repeat itself. While it's all too easy to forget the mistakes of the past, it follows that human beings tend to let the future unfold as it will. No one knows what the future holds, so no one wants to think ahead. Just as old Ebenezer Scrooge could not bring himself to gaze upon the name that was chiseled on a headstone, we tend to regard the days ahead with a certain lack of clarity and nameless dread. But consider, if the past could somehow reach out and hand you a gift that could radically influence what will someday be. Would you take it? Diary
2: of a Time Traveler. Constance held out both hands and took the gift from the little girl who was standing on her tiptoes and reaching up as high as she could to deliver the jar full of bees. Thank you. Constance said, taking the girl's insect collection.
3: Are these bees going to make honey for me to put on my toast?
2: The little girl giggled.
3: <laughs> no, silly. My daddy
4: said that you're going to need some of these bees where you're going. My sister doesn't like bugs very much, so I caught them for you.
3: Well then, I didn't even know I needed bees. So it was good of you and your dad to remember. I'll take very good care of them for you.
4: Okie dokey Miss Weatherbees.
2: With that, the child turned and ran off to where her sister stood waiting. As the two of them turned toward the airplane that was now stopped by the side of the runway, the little girl called out over her shoulder.
4: Bye-bye, Miss Weatherby's. Please tell Mr. Tesla my sister and I said hello.
0: My dad was a flyer. From as far back as I can remember, He and I would go chasing across the sky together in his little single engine airplane, drifting among the clouds and looking down at the world from a bird's eye point of view. At the time, it seemed almost commonplace. I grew up while he was growing old, and then one day, he was gone. It was as if like Icarus and Daedalus. I had flown so high and for so long with him that the wax had melted from my arms and the feathers scattered to the wind, leaving me grounded and wishing for days gone by. Over time, I learned to accept the loss and reflect fondly on a rare experience from childhood. Two years after he passed away, my first daughter was born. If I could have just one wish, one chance to bring yesterday and tomorrow together, it would be so that my kids could take an airplane ride with their grandfather. If I had the chance, I would push back the hands of time To a place and a moment where miracles happen. I would kiss them both on the cheek and then watch them sail off into the wild blue yonder. There to discover that the world is filled with infinite possibilities and that they are free to dream as big as heaven itself. Diary of a time traveler.
2: The little girls walked hand in hand across the field that was now alive with flickering fireflies that drifted like tiny lanterns over gently rustling grass. A man stood waiting for them, waiting from beyond a lifetime to meet his granddaughters for the very first time. Gathering them up in a big hug, he carried them both to his airplane and gently sat them down and secured the door. Turning, the man looked over in the direction of the train and waved. Constance glanced at the engineer who was leaning out of the locomotive cab, waving back to his dad a knowing smile on his face. Here's to happy endings. Holding the jar of bees under her arm, Constance took hold of Malachi's outstretched hand and climbed the steps back into the Vista Dome car. Like a tug on her heartstrings, she felt the train begin to move off to another unknown destination. Once Constance was back inside the car, Malachi pointed to the ball jar she still held tightly under one arm.
5: Miss Weathersby, you were planning on carrying those bees all the way to Chicago, were you now?
2: Still lost in a kind of euphoria, Constance reached down and lifted the jar up to her face and looked inside. There were four or five bees altogether. Most of them were unremarkable, just the garden variety, Constance thought and then chuckled out loud. One of the bees, however, was much larger than the rest. Looking in through the other side of the jar, Malachi was staring intently at the larger insect. Sounding somewhat surprised, he said,
5: Well, I'll be. That little girl called herself a queen bee. I imagine the odds of that happening are pretty darn slim.
2: Malachi took the jar from Constance, gently holding it up to the setting sunlight that still shone in through the window.
5: Pretty darn slim.
3: Oh, come on now, Malachi. This is the Century Unlimited. The odds of any of this happening are astronomical.
2: Constance smiled to the conductor and then continued.
3: Still, I don't recall reading any postcards that indicated I should become a beekeeper.
5: Well, now, Miss Weathersby, I think I can find some place on board to put them for safekeeping. Don't you worry, these bees are as VIP on this right as you and Miss Lamar.
3: I'm not worried, Malachi. You're every bit as good a caretaker as you are a conductor. If I can trust that you'll keep me safe, I imagine the bees are in good hands, too.
0: Years, months. Days, minutes, seconds, threads that stitch together past to present, then to now. Woven into this tapestry of life are moments held in the pattern by memories. Those who have gone on before, though the threads are worn and tattered and their fabric faded, are still entwined in the work.
2: The Century Unlimited picked up speed as it barreled down the track that stretched out across the green Illinois countryside. Almost as if the train had been paused for several minutes within the eye of a hurricane, the track ahead seemed to be leading them back into the churning overcast of a massive storm. Hanging low and ominous like an approaching blight in the sky was a greenish-grey wall cloud that looked for all the world like a scene right out of The Wizard of Oz. Sheets of rain came flooding down as the train rolled beneath the leading edge of the veil, spattering hard against the glass of the Vista Dome. Constance had been focused on reading the various notes concerning her errand in Chicago when she was startled by the sudden violent deluge above her head. Out of the corner of her eye, just before the view became obscured by the eerie, fluid distortion of flowing raindrops, Constance thought she saw the form of a white pigeon following along with the train to the edge of the storm. Constance put down the stack of letters and postcards and turned her gaze to the scene outside the window. The train was moving fast now and the water on the outside of the glass was being blown off before it could coalesce. The view was clear and for a moment, what she saw in the distance didn't quite register to her as real. Feeling the urge to pinch herself to make sure she hadn't dozed off and started dreaming, Constance blinked rapidly several times and then pressed her face to the window. Beneath the boiling underside of storm clouds, Constance could make out a dark swirling column that looked to her like a greenish-colored finger poking through from somewhere over the cloud top. Without looking away, she blurted out,
3: "Hetty, quick, come over here, have a look at
2: this. With Constance's blessing, Hedy had been reading over several of the postcards in the stack concerning the next destination on Constance's route, and interestingly enough, was starting to see a connection, a potential reason why the lives of these two women had crossed. Her concentration broken, Hetty looked up and saw what was now a full-fledged cyclone careening across a cornfield, shredding a path of stalks and sending
6: debris flying high into the air. Wow, I've never seen an honest-to-God twister before. That's Judy Garland's claim to fame. Hetty crossed the aisle
2: and leaned over on the chair beside Constance. The women watched transfixed as the funnel cloud danced back and forth across the landscape, tearing up everything it touched
6: and seemingly on course to cross over the very tracks they were riding on. Oh, now, this can't be good. Somebody better go up front and tell the driver to back this thing up and go the other way.
2: From down the stairs behind them a voice said calmly,
5: Now, Miss Lamar, don't worry your pretty little head too much. Out there, what you might call, the winds of change.
2: Malachi reached the top step and casually walked over to where the women were gathered. Neither of them seemed to notice when he tossed a copy of the day's newspaper on the ledge beneath the window.
5: Out there, things are being uprooted and tossed around but good. After the wind dies down, nothing is ever the same as it was before. Sometimes change is good, sometimes not so good. We can either try to stay out of the way or press on. Embrace change.
2: Constance looked down at the copy of her paper, the Herald Examiner, and for a moment she could feel all the hairs standing up on the back of her neck. There, in bold black and white, the cover story read, The Fate of Nikola Tesla. The funnel cloud only remained on the ground for another minute or so before the well-defined column started spinning off wisps of dust and dirt, gradually dissipating until all that was left was a narrow rope-like vortex. The last of the twister vanished high above the train as the swirling wind subsided and was suddenly obscured from view by a torrential downpour of rain and tiny specks of hail. Relieved that the Century Unlimited didn't get blown off the track, Constance and Hetty both returned to their seats and for a moment, sat in awkward silence. Hetty was the first to restart a conversation. So I was reading about Roswell. Constance was still in a bit of a daze from seeing the tornado.
8: Yeah,
3: Roswell, that's, um, Waka Air Force Base, right?
6: It is. If what this says is true, you're going to have your work cut out for you, getting inside a military installation like that.
2: Hetty held up a photograph that was clipped to a stack of papers. The picture showed what looked like a guard post and two
6: armed military policemen on duty. There's no way in hell you're gonna just shuffle your fanny into this place.
3: Honestly, I'm kind of making all this up as I go. One thing I've learned from riding on this train is that you always expect the unexpected.
6: Hetty smiled knowingly. Very true. In this case, however, I think you may be in need of some assistance. It just so happens that one of my, um, acquaintances, well, a friend of mine is Howard Hughes. He's pretty tight with all these military folks out in California, and I'm thinking that just maybe he can pull some strings and get you inside. See, I don't think it's just a coincidence that you and I ended up riding the same train to Chicago. I think somebody knew that you were gonna need this little hoity-toity actress and all her Hollywood friends back home. Hetty winked and held up the photo in her hand. Howard can help, I just know it.
2: Looming towers of concrete and glass cut a ragged line across the nighttime sky as the train rolled into the Chicago switchyard on the way to Union Station. The webbing of track that covered the ground here was old and uneven, causing the century unlimited to sway side to side, leaning precariously close to a line of box cars on an adjoining track. Constance looked out the window at the city skyline as it passed, and in a way, felt a little more at ease. The big city was all she had ever known. Born and raised in New York, Constance had started feeling too isolated and alone during this trip through the countryside. Even her first errand to Wardenclyffe had made her uneasy, though had she not gone she would have never ended up meeting the love of her life, Nikola Tesla. Tragically, their time spent together was short-lived. Sent on a mission to save the people of a dying Earth, Tesla himself had perished in the attempt and now here she was, desperately following a set of cryptic instructions that was supposed to somehow alter the outcome of that mission, far,
6: far into the future. I heard about this Tucker guy you're gonna see. I think Howard knows him. I overheard him say that Tucker needed help with an engine for his new car.
2: Constance was watching out the window as the train slowly made its approach to Union Station.
3: I'm actually not going to see Preston Tucker. At his specific request, I'm going to the Tucker plant in the dead of night to meet his wife, Vera. I guess Tucker has G-men dogging him everywhere he goes. On the other hand, Vera taking a friend on a tour of the factory would be nothing too far out of the ordinary. The notes from Tesla suggest that I photograph the cars on the assembly line and then deliver them to the jury that will determine the outcome of the Securities and Exchange Commission's trial. The whole point of the trial is to prove that Tucker never intended to build the car. Photographs from the assembly line will prove otherwise.
6: Hetty looked somewhat perplexed. So you're here to save the Tucker car from an early demise? Why? From a speaker box above the staircase behind them came the crackling
2: sound of Malachi's voice.
5: Chicago Union Station, clear stop.
2: Hetty and Constance stepped down to the platform and looked around. Directly across the concrete walkway from them was the Rock Island Peoria Rocket, a gleaming, stainless steel train and state-of-the-art diesel-electric locomotive. It seemed to Constance that this technological marvel would be a much more likely time traveler than the steam-powered Century Unlimited. As she stood there gazing at the streamliner, Constance failed to notice a man walk up to Hetty and throw his arms around her. Howard, so good to see you, darling. How you doing, Hetty? Taking hold of her hand, Howard started pulling Hetty in the direction of the terminal. Come on now, girl. I got a Connie waiting up on the
9: tarmac with all 72 cylinders firing. She's going to take us both back to La La Land faster than you can say lickety-split.
6: Won't air, cowboy. Pulling her hand away. Howard, I have someone here I want you to meet. Howard Hughes, meet Miss Constance Weathersby. Hughes turned around and walked back a few steps to where Constance was standing.
2: Mr. Hughes, Constance said, extending her hand.
9: Miss Wethersby, it is indeed my pleasure to make your acquaintance.
2: Howard took her hand and, rather than a handshake, pulled it up to his lips and gently kissed it. And now, ladies, all
9: pleasantries aside, let's proceed to the nearest exit before my pilot decides to take off
2: without us.
6: Always so impatient, aren't you, Mr. Hughes? The three of them
2: made their way down the platform and into the terminal building with Constance walking a short distance ahead. As she started up a long staircase that led to street level, she heard Hetty say, Constance, wait. Turning, she saw that Hughes was still at the foot of the stairs
6: and Hetty was standing a few steps back. I guess this is where we part ways. Good luck with wherever time takes you. I hope we can cross paths again someday.
2: Constance leaned across the railing and gave Hetty a hug. Me too.
3: Thank you, Hetty, for being a friend on what has been an otherwise lonely journey. I do hope we meet again.
2: Howard stepped up to Constance and held out an umbrella that he had been carrying under his arm.
9: My driver parked under an awning. If you're going up there to hail a cab, you're going to need this more than we do.
3: Thank you, Mr. Hughes.
9: Sure thing. But Constance, call me Howard. All my friends do. Oh, and Constance, one more thing. Hetty tells me you're on your way out to see Mrs. Tucker. Tell Vera hello for me. Tell her that when this whole legal thing blows over, I want to talk price on a new Tucker 48. That's a fine automobile.
3: I'll tell her. I'm sure you can get a good deal.
2: Hughes winked. Well, that's good enough for me. As Hetty and Howard walked off down the corridor, Constance turned and started up the stairs. A sudden chill overtook her when, out of the corner of her eye, she thought she saw Mr. Lanford slowly making his way down the stairs to her right. Too unnerved to confirm her disquiet, Constance quickly climbed the last few steps and wasted no time heading out to the street. The rain was coming down in buckets now, and for some reason there wasn't a single cab waiting near the entrance of the station for a pickup. Constance considered walking back inside the station, but then decided against it when she thought she might run into the chronologer again. Holding the umbrella down over her head, Constance waited several minutes before she finally saw a bright yellow car approaching from about a block away. Throwing her arm up and waving excitedly, she flagged the cab down and as it approached, quickly made her way to the curb. She pulled open the cab door and climbed in. Once seated, she quickly collapsed the umbrella, tossed it on the seat next to her and shut the door. So, uh, where to, lady? The cab driver was looking back at her in the rearview mirror.
3: Oh, uh, of course. Um, The Tucker Automobile factory, please.
2: Okie doke. The driver responded as he flipped on the turn signal and accelerated back out into the street. After a few moments of silence, he looked back in the mirror and asked,
10: You mind if I uh, turn on the radio, miss? This time of the night's the only thing that uh, keeps me from nodding off at the wheel, you know?
2: Of course. Some music would be nice. The driver turned the knob on the dash, and with a soft glow from the radio dial, Benny Goodman's always and always started playing over the gentle patter of raindrops.
3: Yeah, that'll do.
2: As the cab rolled and bounced along the deserted Chicago street, Constance noticed what looked like a wall of flickering marquee lights ahead. For a moment at least, the rain seemed to have let up enough to roll down the window and get a clearer view of whatever this was that gleamed like a beacon in the darkness. Constance could see now that the light was coming from the most majestic theater she had ever seen. Prominently displayed in glowing letters across the leading edge of the marquee was the word Paradise. Oddly, the song that had been playing on the radio suddenly dissolved into static. Once the taxi reached the corner of the theater, the static faded and was replaced by a different song altogether. Though she had never heard this song before, the vocalist seemed as if he were speaking directly to her. Tonight's the night will make history. Honey you and I, cause I'll take any risk to tie back the hands of time and stay with you here tonight. Once the taxi had passed by the theater, the static squelched out the voice and gradually became the song that had been playing before. Constance felt certain this was no coincidence. That was a message
3: from somewhere in time. Nicola is still watching over me.
2: The Tucker factory was a massive structure that stretched out across vast acres of black asphalt. In the early morning darkness, Constance could only make out areas of brick and glass that were being illuminated by an occasional floodlight mounted high up on the building, strategically placed near doorways and loading platforms. As the cab rounded a corner of the building, Constance noticed a pair of automobile headlights shining out across the rain-soaked pavement, headlights from a car that she had seen only once before. A 1948 Tucker Torpedo. The cab driver pulled to a stop a short distance from the Tucker.
10: That'll be $3.75, 75 Miss.
3: Here you go. Thanks for the lift.
2: She stepped out of the taxi and opened the umbrella then walked across the distance to the waiting car. Behind the wheel was a woman that Constance immediately recognized as Vera Tucker.
8: Good morning, Mrs. Tucker.
2: Constance said to Vera as she rolled down the driver's side window.
8: Hey there, hop in and I'll take us someplace a little drier where we can talk.
2: Constance walked briskly around to the passenger side door and climbed in. Vera drove back around the corner in the direction the cab had come from but then turned sharply toward one of the large shipping doors at the end of the building. She then parked the torpedo and let it idle as she got out and went over to a metal switch box next to the door. Pressing one of the two buttons on the box, the large accordion-style shipping door rolled open, revealing a large garage in which several other Tucker automobiles were parked. Returning to the driver's seat, Vera shifted into gear and eased the clutch out slowly, letting the car advance through the opening until it was all the way inside. She then shut off the engine, quickly got back out and closed the shipping door behind them. For a moment, the only light in the room was cast by the Tucker's triple headlamps and all that served to do was to project twisted shadows on a rack of tools that were hanging on the wall in front of the car. Constance heard a loud click from somewhere in the room and in response, a single glowing light bulb at the end of a long cord lit up the surroundings. Vera walked out from a corner of the room where she had flipped the switch and ran her hand along the side of another Tucker car that was parked next to the one she had been driving.
8: This one is mine. Preston chose my favorite color, waltz blue, as one of the hues for his new line of cars. I can't wait to take it for a spin. Constance smiled. That is so romantic. He must love you very much.
2: Vera's enchanted expression slowly faded and was replaced by a look of anger.
8: And I love him so very much. That's why I can't just stand by and let these fat cats from Detroit destroy his dream. Constance, I will do anything in my power to save Preston's car. Do you think you can help me?
3: Vera, I'll be honest with you. I'm simply following a set of instructions. If I get this right, supposedly it will make a difference. Possibly it will change history. So for starters, give me a big smile and stand right where you are.
2: Constance raised her brownie camera to her face and framed a perfect shot, the proud wife of an automotive genius and the special gift he has given her.
3: Now, how about showing me an assembly line full of tuckers?
2: Vera's smile widened as she walked past Constance toward a doorway leading to the next room.
8: Right this way, Miss Weathersby.
2: Constance knew the factory was large simply by driving past the building from the outside. Even so, nothing could have prepared her for the vast expanse of the Tucker assembly line as revealed each time Vera flipped on another light on and on into the distance.
8: Pretty impressive, don't you think?
2: Vera walked over to another Waltz Blue Tucker on the line, reached in and switched on the headlights.
8: For the fact We want the jurors to know everything works.
2: Constance made her way to the car at the front of the line and placed her camera on the hood. Apparently, the workers were in the process of adding the finishing touches to this one, and Constance peered in through the open doors at the pristine, cranberry-colored upholstery.
3: I think I need one of these cars, Vera. They are really amazing.
2: Vera placed her purse on the hood of the blue car, and, striking a pose, she said, Well
8: they are the car of tomorrow, today. <laughs> Both women
2: chuckled at her quote from the Tucker
8: advertisement. <laughs> That's what I hear. Oh, hey, Vera, before I forget, would you says hi. Really? Preston indicated that he had a hand in helping us find the steel we needed to start building the cars. Something about the engines, too. And what Preston told me about this new airplane that he's building, the one the press labeled the Spruce Goose, I guess it must be the biggest airplane ever built. I understand that Howard is in as much hot water as we are with the SEC. They say that we are not building any cars and that he built an airplane that doesn't fly.
2: Constance picked up her camera and pointed it down the long row of cars on the assembly line. Snapping off the first of many photographs, she said,
3: Well, as for Mr. Hughes, I got the impression he can take care of himself. Concerning the Tucker automobile, let's just say that I beg to differ.
2: Once every shot had been taken of the 49 cars on the assembly line and Vera's Waltz Blue Special in the adjoining room, Constance lowered her brownie camera and said,
3: Well, Vera, that's the last one. Hopefully what we have here in this little box is enough evidence to prove once and for all that your husband has, in fact, manufactured and will soon deliver his dream car.
2: Vera Tucker smiled. A tear formed in the corner of her eye and then fell down her cheek. Thank you, Constance. I shudder to think how things
8: might have turned out if it weren't for you.
2: Constance carefully placed her camera back in the case as Vera continued.
8: I mean, I suppose that wouldn't be the end of the world.
2: Constance smiled at the irony of Vera's statement.
3: Let's hope we never have to find out.
2: As Vera hurriedly shut down all the lights in preparation to leave, Constance stood looking into the mirror-like cobalt finish of the special cart Tucker had set aside for his wife. All at once, she noticed what felt like a charge of electricity emanating from the pocket of her dress. Reaching in, she pulled out the tiny gadget that Nicola had included in the stack of letters and postcards he left for her. A tiny note had been tied to the gadget with twine that read, a gift for Preston Tucker. Here's to tomorrow.
3: Vera. My friend Nikola Tesla wanted your husband to have this. He said that Preston would know
2: what to do with it." Vera looked down at the unusual object. It was a flat, circular shape that roughly resembled a pocket watch, though attached to the front face was a large red button and next to that a long cylinder with some kind of clear lens at the top. Constance took her thumb and tapped the button. In response, Two brightly glowing concentric rings of electrical current bloomed out from the cylinder, flickering and arcing in an almost hypnotizing dance. As Vera reached out to take the gadget, Constance lowered her hand away and the device remained hovering in mid-air. Seconds after Vera took hold of the cylinder, the rings of electricity collapsed in on one another and faded away.
8: Oh boy, is Preston gonna have fun with this?
2: Constance wired the copy to her editor the very same day the verdict was read. The photographs she had taken and provided to the jury during their deliberation had resulted in an indisputable outcome. Preston Tucker was found not guilty on all counts, and several days later, the Tucker factory went into full production. Orders for Tucker torpedoes were being filled as promised and delivered to dealerships all around the country. Feeling energized by the overwhelming success of her efforts, Constance checked out of the hotel she had been staying in and took a cab back to Union Station, ready to be on her way to the next destination. Constance made her way back through Union Station en route to the platform where the Century Unlimited idled, waiting for her to board. Intent on getting back to the train, she was understandably surprised to hear that she was being paged over the station intercom.
7: Constance Constance Weathersby to the Great Hall Information Information Desk. Constance Weathersby to the Information
2: Desk, please. Picking up her pace, Constance dodged around waiting passengers and carts loaded with luggage until she arrived at the center of the Great Hall. I'm Constance Weathersby.
7: Ah, good. Telephone call for you, Miss Weathersby.
2: The attendant reached across the marble top counter and handed her the receiver. Hello? This is Constance Weathersby. The voice on the other end was muffled and full of static.
9: Yeah, hello Constance. Howard Hughes here. Don't talk, just listen. I want to congratulate you on a job well done. Matter of fact, my new Tucker 48 was just delivered this morning. Beautiful automobile. Looks like I should have called on you four years ago when the SEC tried to clip my wings. Ah, well, water under the bridge. Anyhow, here's the goods. Eddie gave me the inside scoop on your little trip out west, I want you to take a bit of a detour. Hop the westbound, take it all the way out to California, to a little depot in the high desert near Roswell. I know this sounds ridiculous, but you're gonna find a little hole in the wall called Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club. Ask for Florence Pancho Barnes. I've already spoken to her, and she knows you're coming. Believe me, if anybody can sneak you into the base at Roswell, Pancho can. Anybody asks, I'll deny this call ever took place. That said, good luck. Eddie and I will be rooting for you.
2: There was a loud click and then nothing but a dial tone. Constance handed the phone back to the attendant.
7: Thank you. You're very welcome, Miss Weathersby.
3: Have a safe trip. Safe? Probably not. More like one for the
2: history books. Near as she could recollect, Constance had never traveled west of the Mississippi River. Here, now, she was blazing a trail across the desert on the way to California. Several times, as the Century Unlimited wound its way around high mountains and over deep canyons, it had passed through an occasional tunnel. Constance couldn't be absolutely certain, but it seemed to her that at least once she had seen the familiar blue ribbons of light streaking by outside the Vista Dome ribbons of light that she recognized as some kind of physical manifestation of time travel. Having thoroughly studied the notes concerning this next leg of her journey, she had already noted a slight time discrepancy. The SEC trial against Preston Tucker had taken place from 1949 to 1950. Every point of interest in this next chronology already took place in 1947.
3: So bizarre. Even going to Chicago must have been a time distortion of some kind. Why must I do these things out of order?
2: A huge, charcoal-colored steam locomotive broke her concentration as it rocketed past her window pulling what looked like an endless chain of boxcars to who knows where. Thick, wispy swirls of smoke belched from the stack of the westbound freight, giving the desert landscape a dreamlike appearance. Malachi stepped up beside her carrying a cup of tea on a sterling silver tray.
5: A little something for you, Miss Weathersby.
2: Constance took the cup and raised it to her lips for a sip.
3: You know what, Malachi? I can't decide which is stranger. Crisscrossing time forwards and backwards like a broken clock? Malachi tilted his head inquisitively. Or? Or crisscrossing time forwards and backwards to wind up at a place called the Happy Bottom Riding Club.
2: A hot, dry breeze stirred up little wisps of sand and dirt that swirled around Constance's feet as she stood on the rough roadbed next to the station at Rosamond. This place was, for all the world, like a destination right out of some Wild West novel. Hell for leather. Climbing a small flight of stairs to a raised landing, Constance pushed open an old wooden door and stepped inside the little structure. The cramped surroundings inside the depot were very hot and claustrophobic, not to mention dimly lit. A small oscillating fan on the ticket counter barely had any effect on the stifling heat as it pushed the dog-eared corners of some memos and other documents up and back down again while it slowly turned back and forth. Excuse me, sir? She said to a man seated behind the counter. I wonder if you can
3: tell me where I might find Pancho's Happy
2: Bottom Riding Club. Without so much as a glance up in her direction, the man scratched a thick patch of razor stubble on his chin and responded.
10: It ain't far, just down the road a piece.
2: Taking a small square of paper from an open desk drawer, the man carefully sprinkled a line of tobacco across it, rolled it up on the countertop and then struck a match and lit it. Taking a long, deep drag, he finally looked up at Constance and then exhaled out of the corner of his Uh. mouth blowing a thick cloud of smoke into the already stagnant air. Of course,
10: we can always just follow the big red airplane that's been circling overhead for past three quarters of an hour. Listen close. That'd be Poncho coming around again.
2: Constance strained to listen over the loud hiss of steam coming from the Century Unlimited. After a moment, she did manage to make out the drone of an approaching aircraft engine. Thanks for the heads up, mister.
10: I don't mention it. And keep your head down on the way over there. That Poncho Barnes is one hot dog, Barnes storming screwball.
2: Taking another long drag on his cigarette, the man looked up thoughtfully out the open window.
10: Then again, she may just be the best damn pilot I ever saw.
2: had to see it to believe it. Constance said standing in front of a sign that read, Poncho's Guest Ranch Hotel and Happy Bottom Riding Club. Removing her brownie camera from the case, Constance looked into the eyepiece and then backed up a few steps to get the entire sign in the frame. Instead of immediately snapping a picture, she waited patiently for the little red speck in the sky to turn and start back in her direction. She held the camera steady as the aircraft took shape diving in low over the dry grass and yucca trees until it roared in for a close flyby and she snapped a picture. Perfect. Satisfied that she had just taken the best front page photo ever, Constance buttoned up the camera and threw the strap over her shoulder. Poncho was coming around again and this time it looked as if she might be getting ready to land. Anxious to meet this seemingly eccentric aviatrix named Poncho Barnes, Constance walked briskly down a rough dirt path that led to a collection of buildings that she assumed would be the Happy Bottom Riding Club. The path that Constance had been following ended at the edge of a large, circular pool of bright blue water. A swimming pool might have seemed a little out of place in the middle of the desert, but then, this was no ordinary swimming pool. Standing knee-deep in the water was a horse. At first Constance wondered if the animal had slipped and fallen in the water by accident, but then on closer examination saw that there was actually a concrete ramp that curved around the far side of the pool and led down from ground level. Another horse was standing near the top of the ramp looking back at her. Beyond the second horse, Constance saw what looked like a bright orange rocket at the end of a long runway, venting some sort of vapor from an opening in the tail section. From her notes, She recognized the winged bullet as a Bell X-1 experimental aircraft designed to be the first to break the sound barrier. As she walked around the rim of the pool she became aware of voices and music, barely audible over the gentle wind that was blowing through dry grass and nudging tumbleweeds across the sand. The music and conversation seemed to be coming from a small white building a short distance ahead, but for the moment. Constance wanted a closer look at this extraordinary flying machine. As hot as it was here in the California desert, Constance noticed a considerable temperature drop as she walked across the concrete surface of the runway. Gossamer tendrils of frigid steam enveloped her in a cloud while she traversed the length of the glistening cadmium rocket plane. Frost and dripping condensation coated much of the fuselage and made it difficult to make out any detail at least near the engine and vertical stabilizer. Once she emerged from the Veil of Mist, however, the cockpit and nosecone were clearly visible, as was a man in olive drab coveralls, standing with his back to Constance, his head obscured inside the open hatch of the craft. Good evening, she said loudly over the hiss of the escaping propellant. The man turned and ducked down from the opening. Looking over at Constance, he simply replied, Ma'am? My name is Constance Weathersby. I'm here to see Pancho Barnes. Constance extended her hand in greeting, but the man just put his hands on his hips and smiled back at her.
0: If you come to the right place. That'll be Pancho up there tooling around in the mystery ship. Imagine she'll be here correctly.
2: Trying hard to start a conversation, Constance looked over at the plane and noticed that the words "glamorous Glennis had been painted on the side.
3: So is this Joya plane? The uh uh glamorous Glennis?
0: No, ma'am, this here aircraft belongs to the Air Force. They just let me take her up and ring her out some. Glennis, uh that's my wife, Glennis Yeager. Guess you could say I take her with me whenever I go chasing demons.
2: Finally, the man stuck out his hand and gave Constance a quick shake.
0: Chuck Yeager. Pleasure to meet you, ma'am.
2: I understand you're
3: flying this plane to try and break the sound barrier.
0: No, ma'am. I'm just trying to fly faster than anybody else out here so I can get me a T-bone steak from Pancho.
2: (laughs) She must make a mean steak. From high overhead, Pancho's plane was starting to descend toward the runway. I guess that's my cue. It was truly an honor to meet you, Chuck. I'll keep my eye
3: on the history books. I have a sneaking suspicion I might see you there sometime.
2: Poncho Barnes eased the nose over on her shining red travel air mystery ship, starting a glide path to the runway. Applying full flaps to slow her descent, she throttled up the engine at the last minute and gracefully touched down with a loud, tires on pavement screech. Seconds later, the airplane tilted back until it came to rest on the tiny tail wheel, then turned and taxied back toward where Constance was standing. As the mystery ship rolled to a stop nearby, Poncho revved the engine and then cut power. The swirling barrage of dust, rocks, and sand kicked up by the propeller gradually settled as Poncho pushed her goggles up on her forehead and stood up.
11: Howdy, Constance.
2: Throwing both legs over the rim of the cockpit, she planted her feet firmly on the wing and then jumped down from there to the ground, stirring up a sizable puff of dirt. Strutting briskly up to Constance, she wrapped both arms around her and lifted her off her feet for a big bear hug. Damn good to know you. So how the hell do you wind up crossing paths with an old rat bastard like Howard Hughes? She pulled a handkerchief from her pants pocket and started wiping away dust that covered the front edge of the engine cowling.
11: That son of a bitch is as reclusive as he is famous. Unless, of course, you're a pretty Tinseltown floozy. Then he's all over you like a case of the chicken pox.
2: Poncho wadded up the dirty cloth and stuffed it back in her pocket. Leaning an arm on the wing of the mystery ship, she asked,
11: You ain't from Hollywood, are you? you no,
3: know, Poncho, I'm a reporter from New York City. I was riding a train to Chicago, and it just so happened that Hetty Lamar was a passenger on that very same train.
11: Oh, yeah, Miss Hoity Toity Lamar. One of Howard's more brainy distractions. Word on the street is she is some kind of communications whiz. Even helped out with the war effort. Pretty unlikely if you ask me. I know them prima donna types. About the only thing those girls discover is a run in their stalking.
2: The two women laughed for a moment, and then Poncho's expression became very serious.
11: So, we need to get you on the ground at Walker Air Force Base, huh? I know a few of them boys over there.
2: Poncho eyed Constance carefully.
11: First thing you're going to need is a change of clothes. That dress you're wearing ain't going to get you anywhere at Walker, except maybe a handful of offers for dinner and dancing.
2: Poncho stepped away from the airplane and walked off in the direction of a small stone house with a flat, corrugated metal roof.
11: Come on, sweetie. We'll get you all gusted up.
2: On the way to Poncho's little desert bungalow, the pair passed by the building where Constance had heard music and voices from earlier. Wait here a minute, honey. I gotta run in the bar for a jiffy. Leaving Constance standing, Poncho sprinted to the door and disappeared inside. While she waited, Constance took the opportunity to survey her surroundings. Everything here, a bar full of rebel rousing test pilots, a swimming pool designed for horses, and all of this on the outskirts of an Air Force proving ground for experimental aircraft. Truly an odd collection of humanity, and yet, Constance thought to herself a mix for greatness. These people were all living on the edge of something much larger than themselves, and their collective potential seemed almost limitless. Suddenly, from high above the desert floor, Constance caught sight of what looked like a falling star streaking across the sky. Seconds later, Poncho burst through the door of the bar with five or six people trailing behind her. All of them stopped near where she was standing and turned their faces skyward. Yee-haw! Right that stallion, Ridley. Squinting against the bright evening sunlight that lit up the contrail, Constance finally caught sight of an orange bullet ripping its way through the sky on the leading edge of the exhaust.
5: Bull elbow, go!
2: Someone else called out. As the X-1 quickly vanished from view on the horizon, Constance glanced over her shoulder where the other plane sat waiting its turn. Jaeger was there, standing high up on the wing of his girl Glennis, watching his friend Jack Ridley take a shot at catching the demon. Over the public address loudspeaker, she heard a voice from the tracking station monitoring the flight.
12: Maximum sustained velocity, Mach 0.98.
2: Looking over at Constance, Chuck winked at her and then climbed down from his perch. Several seconds later, Poncho clapped her on the back. Come on, girl. We're gonna
11: see if we can squeeze you into uniform.
2: That's the mothership. B-29
11: Super Fortress. The rocket plane gets tucked away nice and neat under her belly, and then she hauls it up to drop height.
2: As the B-29 roared over Poncho's house, the landing gear folded down and locked in place. Seconds later, the big bomber touched down on the runway.
11: I imagine it'll be Jaeger up next. He tells me he likes his steak medium rare.
2: I've got ten
3: bucks that says you're gonna owe him that steak.
11: Honey, (laughs) ain't no way I'm going to take that bed. No way in hell. Any wager against Chuck Yeager is bound to be a losing proposition. Poncho walked up to her front porch and stopped. Bedroom's first door on the right. In my closet, you'll find a full dress uniform for the United States Army Air Corps. From this point on, you are no longer a reporter for the New York Herald Examiner. From the moment your feet hit the tarmac at Walker, You're a field agent with the Office of Air Corps Intelligence, and you got top secret clearance, baby.
2: As Constance opened the front door to go in and get dressed, a stocky, fawn-haired French bulldog came marching out to the porch and collapsed at Poncho's feet, obviously happy to be laying in the glow of the evening sun. Well, throttle back and drop my gear if it ain't Miss Mitchell. Kneeling down and stroking the dog's downy fur. Does Mama's little co-pilot want to take an airplane ride this evening? Miss Mitchell quickly got to her feet and started running in the direction of the nearby runway. Whoa there, baby cakes. Don't be so impatient. We got standby on the flight line for a VIP passenger. Reaching into the pocket of her flight jacket, Poncho held up a bone-shaped biscuit for Miss Mitchell to see. Instantly, the dog came running back and greedily gobbled up the treat. That's my girl. You know we don't have any in-flight food service. Constance finished putting on the uniform and then stood back and examined herself in the mirror. This just might work. Carefully adjusting the garrison cap so that it rested smartly on her head, she said. If I didn't know any better, I'd say I've just been drafted. Quickly packing her civilian clothes in an olive drab knapsack, Constance tossed her brownie camera in as well for safekeeping and then pulled the drawstring shut.
3: I hope my dear Nicola knows how much I love him. There aren't many fellas in this old world that a girl is willing to go to war for.
2: Constance stepped out into the bright evening sunset and saw that Poncho was no longer standing there waiting for her. Looking down, she saw Miss Mitchell, Poncho's French bulldog, sitting on a patch of dry grass, looking back at her. As Constance stepped out from under the porch awning, the dog stood up, took several steps away, and then planted her butt on the ground again, as if waiting for Constance to follow after her. You're an odd little dog, aren't you? Miss Mitchell tilted her head to one side, listening. Are you taking me to Poncho? The dog remained seated this time as Constance approached her and reached down to scratch behind her ear. I'm over here, Constance. Poncho called out from a short distance down the runway. Constance saw that Poncho was now seated behind the controls of a large, twin-engine military plane, apparently ready to get underway. If you're waiting for Miss Mitchell to lead you over here, I might
11: as well go back to the bar and have a few beers. Now shimmy this way and climb in, Constance.
2: Let's get this show on the road. Constance sprinted past the dog and headed toward the airplane and would have kept going had it not been for a loud wolf from behind her. (laughs) Miss Mitchell was still sitting there, apparently waiting patiently for Constance to pick her up and carry her to the plane. Poncho chuckled.
11: Connie? Would you be a dear and bring Miss Mitchell along with you? She's all
2: tuckered out from a long day napping.
3: Oh, sure. I imagine she must have been exhausted.
2: Constance wrapped an arm around the dog's barrel chest and started hoisting her up under one arm. Groaning at the strain of lifting Miss Mitchell, she said sarcastically, My goodness, she's
3: as light as a feather.
2: Once Constance was safely strapped into the co-pilot's chair, Miss Mitchell sprinted over the throttle controls and scurried up into her lap. Placing her front paws on the rim of the side window, she sat quietly and waited for Poncho to fire up the engines. The dog barked several times as the big propeller on the wing outside started spinning, springing to life after a loud bang and a puff of black smoke from the ignition.
3: What kind of airplane did you say this was, Poncho?
2: A B-25 medium bomber she pushed the levers to full throttle. In response, the big engine nacelles on both sides of the fuselage roared to a crescendo and the airplane lurched forward and started rolling down the runway.
11: This here is a big, beautiful Mitchell.
2: Leaning across the power controls and grinning from ear to ear, Poncho gave Miss Mitchell a playful nudge on her hindquarters.
11: And this airplane ain't so bad neither.
2: As Poncho guided the B-25 to the end of the runway, she glanced outside and noticed a man in a pressure suit standing at the edge of the asphalt. Jaeger, Sliding the window glass on the side of the canopy open, Poncho stuck her arm out and started waving wildly. Yo, Pugknocker, I catch wind that you went after that demon while I was M.I.A.
11: I'm gonna tie your ass to a prickly pear and let you watch Jack Ridley break that sound
2: barrier. There was no way that Chuck could hear Poncho's rant, and he just smiled and waved back at her as the bomber picked up speed and became airborne. Pulling back hard on the yoke, the nose of the plane rose until all Constance could see through the windshield was a breathtaking violet-blue sky dotted with golden clouds. That'd be just like him. Go and make history while I'm not looking. Constance was amused by the irony of her words. Little did Poncho know, but she was well on her way to helping reshape, even potentially save, the future. The B-25 was still oriented in a steep climb when Poncho looked over at Constance and said, Hey, take the yoke for a spell, can you, Connie? With that, Poncho unlatched her safety restraints and stood up. Panic-stricken, Constance reached out and grabbed hold of the wheel in a white-knuckle grip. What am I supposed to do, Poncho? The eccentric Miss Barnes had removed a bright orange square of paper from her flight jacket, scribbled something on it with a pen, and was now busily folding the note over and over again on the metal bulkhead behind the headrest of her chair. Shoot, Constance,
11: this aircraft near flies itself. Just pull back on the yoke a smidge and keep us heading
2: upstairs. As Constance clutched the wheel and tried to hold it steady, Poncho finished folding a perfect paper airplane facsimile of the X-1 rocket plane. Reaching forward to the control panel, Poncho then toggled a switch labeled Bomb Bay Doors to the on position and disappeared from view somewhere in the back of the plane. For a moment there was a faint whirring sound and subtle vibration as the two large panels in the belly of the fuselage parted. Poncho tossed the paper airplane out through the opening. After a moment she returned and sat back down at the controls taking over flying the Mitchell as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened.
11: Just a little bit of business I had to take care of. The note was for
2: Jaeger. He either waits till I get home or the steak dinner is off the table. Once the B-25 reached cruising altitude and Poncho leveled off their ascent, Constance eased back in her chair and allowed herself to relax. No longer anticipating that she might be asked to take the controls, she looked around at the arid landscape passing by below them. The high desert of California was rugged and majestic.
3: Magnificent desolation.
11: It is it that. I wouldn't have it any other way. I moved in and set up the ranch way before the Air Force decided to be neighborly. Now that they're here, I get to swap stories with some of the best day and pilots in the world. Not only that, I still get all my Hollywood cronies up for a beer and a bunk. I don't know who likes rubbing shoulders more, the celebrity or the hot dog Rocket Aces."
2: Poncho smiled, reminiscing.
11: "'I worked on Hell's Angels with your buddy Howard, you know. Blue stunt pilot for him.'"
2: Constance studied Poncho's features as she spoke. This was a woman who had obviously laughed hard and played hard her whole life, most likely enjoying every minute. Poncho reached out and flipped a switch on the console labeled autopilot. She then unlatched her seatbelt and turned to face Constance, throwing one leg over the arm of her chair. So Connie, level with me. Why am I sneaking you into the base at Roswell? Constance figured the question would inevitably come up and had actually spent some time thinking about how best to respond. Still, any way you look at it, Poncho was going to have a lot to chew on. Glancing around the rear of the cabin, Constance saw Miss Mitchell seated on top of a wooden box, looking back at her.
3: No sense being subtle this time. Subtlety would most certainly be wasted on Poncho Bonds.
2: Miss Bonds, do you believe in flying sauces? For a long while, Poncho didn't say anything at all. The two women sat there in silence, both lost in thought. For Constance, Her mind reeled as she tried to come up with something, anything, to change the subject. Just as she was about to blurt out some superficial nonsense about the weather that might kickstart the conversation, Poncho looked over at her.
11: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do believe.
2: Constance was taken by surprise with her answer. Really? I wouldn't have guessed that about you at all.
11: Oh, you'd be surprised at the wonders I've seen. honey. When you log as many hours as I do up here in the wild blue yonder, you're bound to run across a few blips on the old radar that can't be reconnoited. I've seen my fair share.
2: Though completely unexpected, Constance was relieved to know she wasn't telling her story to a brick wall.
3: Sometime in late June, something
2: crashed near Roswell.
3: Now officials from Waka are going to be sent out to examine the wreckage early tomorrow morning. They're going to say that the debris found didn't originate anywhere on Earth. Shortly after that, they're going to release a cover story by the Air Force. It's going to say that what was found in the desert was nothing more than scraps of foil and rubber from a downed weather balloon. (laughs) Yeah, right. According to my sources, that ain't the case at all. Not only are we dealing with an actual crashed flying saucer here, but its occupants as well. At least one of them survived.
2: Now it was Poncho's turn at a look of utter disbelief. Real live aliens? (laughs) Like
11: Little Green Man? Not exactly. The word is,
3: the color of their skin is actually more of a light gray.
2: The B-25 crossed into Roswell airspace at approximately 3.20 a.m. on July 7, 1947. Moments later, Poncho made a sweeping pass over the Walker airfield and carefully surveyed the activity taking place on the grounds below. The only evidence of anything out of the ordinary was a small group of military personnel gathered together next to a base transport bus. One of the men looked up and watched the Mitchell as it soared by overhead. Poncho turned away from the window and looked over at Constance.
11: Well, we've been spotted. Time to make this official.
2: Tapping a button on her headset. Walker Control, this is 7208 PV out of Edwards requesting permission to land. At first, there seemed to be nobody watching the store.
11: Walker Control, this is 7208 PV out of Edwards. Come on, Roswell, talk to me.
2: Crackling static was finally interrupted by the tower controller's voice. Uh,
10: 7208 AB, this is Walker. Request denied. Uh.
2: Poncho rolled her eyes, annoyed. Uh, Walker Control, do you mind explaining that last communique? Uh.
10: Uh, Walker is currently on lockdown, ma'am. Orders of Colonel Blanchard. Uh.
2: Poncho smiled and nodded her head. She could tell that Constance was having her doubts about the success of this little field trip, and she shot her a wink of confidence.
11: Lock down my ass, soldier. You go and tell old Bill Blanchard that he's got poncho Barnes circle around up here on fumes. Tell him I'm transporting a field agent from the Air Counterintelligence Office all the way out here from Edwards to have a look at your little weather balloon. You go and tell him that. I'm on standby.
2: Well, Connie, we'll see. Maybe they'll buy it.
11: Maybe they won't.
2: Seconds later, the radio crackled.
10: Uh, you're clear to land, Miss Barnes. Runway 19 or West. Uh,
11: uh, Roger that. 19 West. We're on approach. Uh.
2: Poncho brought the B-25 to a stop on a segment of the runway where she had seen a group of officers from the air having a conversation. Standing in the dim morning light, illuminated slightly by the headlamps of the bus that was parked and idling nearby.
11: Come on, Constance, let's go see what these fellas are jawjacking about.
2: As the two big twin engines started winding down, Poncho pushed open the hatch and extended a ladder down to the ground. With Miss Mitchell slung securely over one shoulder, she scrambled down the ladder and wasted no time striding across the distance from her aircraft to the bus. Top of the morning, gents she offered up a salute. Recognizing William Blanchard as one of the men in the group, she carefully sat Miss Mitchell on the ground, walked up, and threw her arms around him. Holy horseshit, Bill. I got tired of waiting for you to come to the club, so I
10: brought the party here. Poncho Barnes, as a live and breathe. How long has it been?
2: Poncho scratched the side of her head in faux contemplation. Almost long enough for me to run out in your favorite whiskey. Blanchard cracked a little
11: smile and chuckled. (laughs) Got someone else here I need you to meet. Flew her here special all the way from Edwards. Colonel Blanchard, meet Special Agent Weathersby from the Air Corps Counterintelligence.
2: Constance walked up to the group and saluted. Pleasure, sir. All mine. Wasn't aware that
10: our news made it all the way out to Edwards. Be that as it may, damn glad to have you here, Agent Weathersby. Major Marcel here was just about to drive out and meet that rancher guy that found the thing. Uh, bazin, b- Bazin, bra- Brazel, something like that. That's Brazel, Colonel. Mac Brazel.
13: He's a foreman out at the Foster Ranch.
10: That's the one. You suppose Agent Weather's can tag along. She's been needing to get out there and look over that situation.
13: Sure thing, Colonel. Ma'am, if you'll hop on board, I was just about to leave.
2: As Constance stepped up to the door of the bus, she glanced over at Poncho, who was holding Miss Mitchell with one hand, holding out a thumbs up with the other and grinning from ear to ear. Thanks, Poncho,
3: for everything.
11: Go
2: get em, girl. As Constance climbed in and sat down, she heard Poncho call after her. Take care of the dry cleaning, would you, dear? The early morning sky was still littered with stars, though the black veil of deep space was gradually being obscured by a violet-blue halo of sunlight from just over the horizon. Constance leaned out the window of the bus and felt the arid desert air gently blowing across her face. She was tired. Very tired. She slept quite well aboard the Century Unlimited on the trip out west, but ever since arriving at the Happy Bottom Riding Club she had not had so much as a catnap. The breeze felt good and she was starting to doze when Major Marcel leaned over and tapped her on the shoulder.
13: Agent Weathersby, are you here in response to the press release or had you been officially apprised of the situation?
2: Constance blinked several times to snap her back to the moment. I'm sorry, Major.
3: I just about nodded off there. I haven't read any press release. My interest in this event is definitely the result of information I received from higher up the chain of
2: command. Marcel was as wide-eyed as a schoolboy. So what do you think this thing is? Constance was trying to seem as convincing as possible for a civilian in a borrowed uniform.
3: I'm going to reserve any theories until I take a look at the evidence. Major Marcel, I'm guessing you're not convinced it's a weather balloon.
13: Call me Jesse. And no, Agent Weathersby, I'm not at all convinced. This base sends up weather balloons every day and everyone here knows what they look like. I came off to the ranch yesterday with Mac, and the stuff he showed me did not come off a weather balloon.
2: A shiver coursed through Constance when she sensed the sincerity that Marcel was exhibiting. It was obvious that this man had seen or touched something that he believed was not of this earth. Consequently, Constance was already 99% certain he was right.
13: I saw a disc, up in the air, a silver disc, that wasn't there. Two more weren't there, again today. Oh how I wish, they'd go away.
2: Constance looked over at Major Marcel in surprise. Did you just make that up?
13: No ma'am, that was a piece of graffiti I read once on a laboratory wall at White Sands Missile Range. Stuck with me ever since. I don't know, Agent Weathersby. You hear about this stuff all the time these days. Flying saucers and giant birds, Bigfoot, Mothman and the men in black.
2: All at once an ice-cold fear took hold of Constance. Men in black? Marcel glanced at her.
13: Yeah, no one knows who or what they are. Government agents? Beings from some other dimension? Maybe aliens? I guess they usually show up after somebody claims to have seen a flying saucer. Their purpose seems to be to scare the witnesses into keeping their mouths shut.
2: Constance sat in frozen silence and stared blankly out the open window. Ever hear of a fella that goes by the name Lampfear,
3: Major?
13: Can't say as I have. Who is he?
2: I have no idea. Leaning as far out the side window as she could, Constance was straining her eyes in the gloom of the desert brush and cacti, trying to make out a large, dark shape laying in a ditch several yards away from the trail they were on. The shape seemed vaguely human. Attached to or tangled around one arm of the shape was a thick strand of rope that stretched up into the sky and looked as if it were tugging at the form like a bobber on a fishing line. Constance turned her gaze upward and saw that the rope curved high into the sky, tethered to a large transparent balloon overhead. Noticing that Agent Weathersby had become preoccupied with something outside, Major Marcel leaned forward and looked out the windshield, up in the same direction as his passenger. Instantly spotting the object of her scrutiny, he took one hand off the wheel, pointing skyward, he added,
13: Now that, Agent Weathersby, is a weather balloon.
2: Several miles past the encounter with an errant weather balloon, Major Marcel brought the bus to a stop before a barbed wire fence that barred continued passage down the trail they'd been traveling. There was an opening in the fence, but it was being guarded by a military policeman that wasn't moving out of the way to let them through. Marcel engaged the parking brake and stepped outside. Addressing the MP, he said,
13: Major Jesse Marcel, Walker Air Force Base.
2: The pair saluted each other before the MP said,
10: I'm sorry, Major. I'm not permitted to let anyone pass this checkpoint. Orders from General Ramey.
13: I don't understand, soldier. Why is this piece of land being cordoned off? The debris field is about five miles further north.
2: The MP stood his ground, expressionless.
10: Don't know the answer to that, sir. General's orders. I can't let you through.
2: Marcel returned to the driver's seat in the bus.
13: We can still get out to the crash site. We'll just have to take the long way round. Back out on the main highway for a few extra miles.
3: That won't be necessary, Major. You can just let me off here.
2: Marcel looked a little incredulous.
13: You heard what the man said. He's not letting anyone get by here.
2: Stepping down from the bus, Constance gestured beyond the fence line at a Tucker 48 that had just pulled to a stop a few feet past the gate. Mr. Lanfer stood up from behind the wheel and started walking in her direction.
3: It's okay, Major. Looks like they're expecting me. Find out all you can from McBrazel, document everything, and whatever you do, don't pose for any pictures with a roll of tinfoil.
2: Constance walked through the gate without so much as a sideways glance from the MP. As she approached Mr. Lanther, she pointed at his car and said,
3: Enjoying your ride? Of course.
4: It is, after all, the car of tomorrow, today. There it is, dearest Constance.
2: Lanther said, gesturing at the surrealistic vision before her.
4: That is your white whale. Smashed to bits against the side of that mountain is the thing that you have chased across time desperately trying to solve a riddle that will bring your dear Tesla back to you.
2: Lanfer circled slowly around her, watching intently for any sign of weakness or resolve. As yet, Constance was impossible to read, a blank page that would either write an epilogue to this chapter in the human experience or become the start of a whole new volume.
4: The moment is at hand. All that you are, all that you have ever done or will ever do in this lifetime comes down to this. Your puzzle is in pieces before you, Miss Weathersby. All the king's horses. And all the king's men. They are about to sweep the destiny of mankind under a rug, unless you can put the pieces together again.
2: Constance started quietly sobbing as she stared disbelieving at the shattered craft from another world.
3: Were there survivors? Any survivors?
4: There was one. It. The extraterrestrial suffered a tremendous number of internal injuries. For the moment, it is in stable condition. Come, Miss Weathersby. Perhaps there is yet time for a brief conversation.
2: The ambulance was civilian white with a red cross painted on the door. Somehow, Constance had pictured a much more military scenario heavily armed, top secret, and tightly controlled. Logically, however, the circumstances seemed to dictate this seemingly knee-jerk course of action. Stopping beside the rear door of the ambulance, she paused for a moment and then tentatively peered inside. She sensed a slight ringing in her ears that she attributed to a large helicopter whose rhythmic thumping as it circled the area was reverberating and echoing all across the canyon.
3: Yeah, that must be it.
2: Waiting by his car, Mr. Lanfer contemplated the fact that he was about to allow the greatest moment in history to transpire without his careful guidance. As it was with all matters of human endeavor, he stood powerless to interfere. He had seen to it that Constance would be where she needed to be. The rest was up to her.
3: What on earth does one say to a being from outer space?
2: The entity was sitting up on the edge of the ambulance tailgate and facing away from her, eyes closed. Intravenous tubes dripping some kind of bluish-green fluid were connected to the alien through the underside of its wrist. Constance noticed numerous contusions, hurriedly stitched, covering much of the alien's chest, back and legs. What on Earth indeed? Startled, Constance looked around for the source of the voice that spoke to her. An MP stood to one side of the car and still appeared to be at attention, silent and unmoving. Who's there? Gradually, the alien turned to face her and opened its eyes. Large, liquid and frighteningly black, it looked up and blinked several times to focus on her. The alien's bulbous, egg-shaped head was incredibly disproportionate to its body, yet, did not elicit nearly as much dread to Constance as the obsidian eyes, infinitely dark and mysterious as the universe itself.
3: Was it you?
7: In your mind, Constance. Sadly, evolution has long since robbed my race of our ability to speak, to sing, to share in conversation. I'm afraid that my thoughts will have to suffice. In a few short moments, I have to share them with you.
2: Constance suddenly felt extremely vulnerable. How do you know my name? The alien's voice was soft and tenuous as it drifted silently across her mind.
7: Your thoughts are pristine. I fully understand who you are and why you have come. I am humbled. In my life and experience, I have never been in the presence of a time-traveler.
2: A tear formed and fell from one of the creature's eyes.
7: Imprisoned upon a satellite circling the planet you know as Mars, my crew and I will be ultimately responsible for the complete destruction of your humanity. I did not realize this. Now I have seen it. In your mind, you were there.
2: Constance stepped up next to the alien and sat down beside him. Yeah, I was there. Constance reached out her hand. Tentatively, the alien wrapped his tiny fingers around hers and held on as best he could.
3: Tell me what happened.
2: For a long moment, the alien did not respond. It was clear to her that he was in a great deal of pain and having difficulty concentrating. When she finally heard his thoughts again, they were even weaker and more indistinct than before, like soft rain on the surface of a lake.
7: Several thousands of your centuries ago, my colleagues and I arrived in this solar system en route to the third planet where we were to analyze the primitive life-forms found there and collect specimens to take back to our world to study. Earth? Yes, Constance. As it was many millennia ago, we were supposed to come here as observers. We meant no harm. As we prepared to pass by the fourth planet, The effect of our massive solar flare created an irreversible disturbance in the electromagnetic fields that propel our ships. We determined that a crash landing on the surface of Mars would no doubt strand us there. With no hope of escape, it was decided that our ships would set down on the large Martian satellite you call us, Gravity was much less powerful there, and it was thought that collectively we would find a solution to complete our mission, or at the very least be able to return safely to our own world. Once we had all landed, we realized that not only had the flare caused a system failure, it had also depleted our energy supply. To the point that all we could hope to do was to keep our life support functions operational. By generating a low-level electromagnetic field around all three ships, we were able to extend the collective life support duration indefinitely. And so you've been
3: trapped there ever since? Thousands of years? Is your lifespan really that
7: long? No our expectancy is not dissimilar to humans we did however possess the ability to place ourselves in a suspended state in which all of our body functions are reduced to near non-existence all of us simply went to sleep
3: the electric magnetic field you put up around your ships would it have been powerful enough to
7: Alter the orbital trajectory of Phobos? Yes. It would have also created a barrier of imbalance in your Tesla Teleforce speed. His plan to save the people of Mars would have been successful
2: had it not been for us. For us. For us. Constance looked up at a moment of absolute revelation and found herself staring into the faces of four military medics that now stood near the back of the ambulance.
10: Time's up, Agent Weathersby.
2: The MP that had been standing watch the whole time now stepped forward and took hold of Constance's arm, pulling her from the car. Wait! I need to know one more thing! The MP continued dragging her away from the ambulance until Mr. Lanford stepped forward and intervened. Give her a moment more. As the medics helped lift the alien back onto the stretcher and prepared to shut the tailgate, Constance blurted out,
3: Why are you here now? Please tell me. I don't understand why you're not back on Phobos with your crew.
2: Just as she finished uttering the words, one of the medics slammed the door shut seconds later the ambulance started rolling away across the sand. Mr. Landfair stood nearby and watched with Constance as the ambulance crunched across sand, loose rocks, and scrub brush, no doubt on its way back to Walker Air Force Base. He's just a
3: lab specimen to them, isn't he? They'll dissect him into a million pieces and then stuff him in a jar labeled top secret.
2: Landfair turned to Constance.
4: Yes, him and many others like him.
2: An overwhelming sense of sadness washed over Constance and she steadied herself on the hood of Lanfear's Tucker. Then, barely more than a whisper above a gust of desert wind, Constance heard the alien's voice speak to her one last time. I awoke to the
7: transmission from Earth. It was a communication from Nikola Tesla. At the time I received the transmission on Phobos, the year here on Earth would have been 1899. By the time the crew of my ship and I were fully revived, the broadcast had ended and repeated attempts to re-establish a signal with him were only met with static. With just enough reserve power to break free from Mars gravity, we set our ship adrift on solar winds. To conserve power, we returned to suspended animation hoping that one day we would reach our destination.
2: The ambulance disappeared behind a sand dune and with it, the voice of the alien faded away. Something? Lanphier asked, watching Constance snap out of what seemed to be a trance-like state. I believe so. I need a
3: lift to the nearest depot if you don't mind. I got a train to catch.
2: The Century Unlimited glided out of a tunnel and into the majestic high country of the Colorado Rockies, a few minutes out of Colorado Springs. From the vista dome of her car, Constance caught her first glimpse of Pike's Peak, rising like a colossal rampart from the green blanket of trees covering the valley and nearby hills. The peak itself seemed to represent a climactic conclusion of some sort. Constance could sense that she was nearing the end of the line though what she would find continued to remain a mystery. Making her way downstairs, Constance seated herself in front of her typewriter and breathed a heavy sigh. Rolled through to the last line on the paper was the final page of her story that spanned from a quiet airfield in Illinois to the lonely desert near Roswell.
3: Quite a journey.
2: Placing her fingers on the keys she typed.
3: On to Tesla's laboratory at Colorado Springs. What I find when I get there is anybody's guess. Of course, this reporter is no different than the rest of you. She's always been a sucker for a happy ending. Then again, that's the stuff that dreams are made of. And by now, I'm pretty sure I've not been sleeping much. I guess we'll see.
2: Manitou Springs, Colorado, 1899. Constance stepped down to the wooden platform and looked around at the breathtaking wilderness vista that surrounded her. Never in her life had she seen such beautiful country. Acre after rolling acre of forest stretched out to the edges of jutting rock formations, which in turn reached upward to become snow-capped peaks. Above the towering mountains, a bright blue sky swirled with brilliant clouds that reminded Constance of a painter's brushstrokes, suddenly surprised to see her breath.
3: Amazing.
2: Realizing just how chilly the air was here, Constance started walking in the direction of the little stone depot when she heard her name being called out. A man was standing on a parallel track next to the Century Unlimited, cupping his hands to his mouth.
12: Constance, Constance Weathersby.
2: When he noticed her looking at him from the platform he smiled and removed his hat with a slight bow.
12: Miss Weathersby, I presume?
2: Constance took several steps over to the edge of the track and replied, That's me!
12: It is indeed a pleasure to meet you. Nicola, I mean Mr. Tesla has told me so much about you, it's almost as if I know you already. My name is Alexander Pierce, I'm an associate of Teslas from Colorado Springs. I also happen to own the only horseless carriage in the state. That is, of course, why I'm here, to transport you to Tesla's laboratory. If you would follow me please.
2: As Alexander led Constance around to the far side of the tracks, the locomotive pulling the Century Unlimited suddenly belched out a massive release of steam and started rolling backwards down the mainline track it was situated on. Slowly pushing the row of passenger cars back past the sideline switch, the sentry pulled to a stop with a loud hiss and then paused, long enough for the engineer to climb down from the cab and twist a lever to one side of the Y-shaped intersection. Before returning to his station, he looked over at Constance and shouted to her over the loud chugging of the idle locomotive.
0: It's time to switch payloads, Miss Withersby. Hope I gave you a smooth ride so
2: far. Constance smiled back at him and waved. Smooth as glass. What time is it where you're heading? The engineer removed his cap and scratched a bald spot on the crown of his head. Same time. He said as he climbed the steps back to the cab. After a moment, he poked his head out the window and as he released the brake said,
0: Other side of that big mountain over there. We'll see you around, Constance.
2: The locomotive crept around the shallow curve of the parallel rails, pulling the bright silver and yellow cars to the sideline track. Moments later, the train disconnected from the steam engine with a blast of silver-white smoke and the engine started picking up speed, gliding back to the mainline and gradually vanishing over a rise in the distance. Looking in the direction that Piers had been walking, Constance saw that he was now standing next to a tiny black flivver that was parked and rattling behind one of the abandoned train cars. She marveled at the cute and immaculately maintained antique and was about to compliment the owner, but stopped herself from saying something, realizing that to him this was no vintage automobile, but most likely something that just rolled off an assembly line. Are you sure we're both gonna fit? Alexander opened the door and held it for her while she climbed in, then hurried around to the driver's side and squeezed in next to her. Engaging the clutch, he shifted the carriage into gear and smacked Constance in the kneecap with the shift knob.
12: Ouch! Sorry, Constance. Chin up, my dear. We only have about seven miles to go.
2: Constance slid over on the seat as far as she could, making just enough room for him to operate the stick shift.
3: That's good, otherwise I may decide to climb up on the roof.
2: The little horseless carriage would have managed to maintain a fairly decent speed if not for the inconvenience of a gravel road composed of more switchbacks and hairpin turns than a Coney Island roller coaster. Constance sat uncomfortably and fretted about the unfortunate lack of shock absorbers in 1899 as the car bounced in and out of uneven ruts in the path, eroded away by repeated exposure to snow and rain. Beyond the unfortunate circumstance of transportation, Constance still found herself captivated by the overwhelming grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. Around every new curve she found herself in even more wide-eyed wonder than the last. Her idea of a room with a view had been all but completely shattered since her arrival here. Having lived out most of her adult life in New York City, she had become convinced that standing atop the Empire State Building and looking out across a concrete and steel landscape was majestic. Now she was face to face with Pike's Peak, no skyscraper would ever hold her attention in the same way again. She was curious why Nicola would have ever abandoned this beautiful location for his laboratory and decide to move back east to the relatively unremarkable surroundings of Wardenclyffe.
3: How long has Nicola been working here at Colorado Springs?
12: Only just this year. To be perfectly honest, I don't know how he does it up here completely isolated from every living soul on earth. The loneliness apart from others must be something completely new to the human experience.
2: Constance could feel an aching sadness welling up inside of her and decided to sit quietly for the rest of the trip, focusing her thoughts on the scenery and holding her emotions at bay, at least until they arrived at the lab.
3: Pull over here, can you, Alexander?
12: certainly constance though as you can see we're nearly i
3: know from here on out though there is something i need to see for myself
2: alexander sighed, resigning himself to nothing more than a solitary trek back down the mountain
12: i had hoped to see a touching reunion between two people who are very much in love
2: steering the carriage over to a wide patch of tightly packed gravel he applied the brake and took the little fliver out of gear without hesitation Constance excitedly turned the handle on the door and stepped out, carefully working her way along the edge of a slight drop in the road until she stood outside the driver's side window.
12: I know I won't be seeing either one of you again. His path, and consequently yours as well, leads to a far greater destiny than this pile of rocks in the wilderness. I wish you both the very best.
3: As eccentric as the man can be, he certainly knows how to pick the
2: best of friends. Leaning in the window, she gave him a kiss on the cheek.
3: Take care, Alexander Pierce. Thank you for bringing me back to him.
2: Out of the corner of her eye, Constance noticed a flickering violet glow forming on the rear wheel of the carriage. A telltale arc of electricity danced off the metal axle and fanned out until it gently touched three beautifully colored butterflies that were flitting around near the road. Constance could clearly see the swirling blue halos of St. Elmo's fire dancing across their delicate wings. Looking up in the direction of the lab, she smiled. This would be the place. Standing alone like some primitive sentinel on the edge of civilization, Tesla's laboratory was both rustic and technological at the same time. Looking for all the world like a dilapidated barn with several leaning timbers keeping it from collapse, the structure and littered surroundings suggested some kind of frontier outpost. Barrels and crates strewn about, a pair of shoes dangling by the laces from one of the wooden supports and charred ashes on the ground from a recent campfire.
3: More a mountain man than scientific genius.
2: However, sprouting out of all this clutter was a single, gleaming silver antenna that reached skyward, towering over the lab and emitting a pulsating stream of man-made lightning. Bolts of white-hot electricity skittered up and down the antenna, radiating out from a large metallic sphere mounted on the top. Above the sphere, electricity coalesced into a glowing column of flickering light like a gleaming filament connecting Earth and sky. A raven glided past overhead, seemingly unaffected by the tremendous release of electricity nearby. As Constance approached the door of the lab, she heard a loud clank from somewhere inside and the energy discharge from the antenna abruptly winked out. Lifting the wooden bolt, she pulled the door open and took a few tentative steps inside. Is it really you? High up in the rafters, the silver sphere had retracted down from the scaffolding outside and was now perched high in a wooden alcove still resonating with occasional arcs of static electricity. From somewhere in the room came a response to her question.
1: Only time will tell, dearest Constance.
2: As her eyes slowly adjusted to the dim phosphorescence, Constance could make out the silhouette of a man standing next to a large generator near the center of the room. Nicola! She ran to him, arms outstretched. Tesla caught her in an embrace, holding on in an effort to fend off all the yesterdays and all the tomorrows that they had been apart.
1: My love, you came back for me after all.
2: Always,
3: Nicola, always and always.
2: Tears flowed from her eyes, tears of joy, knowing that everything she had gone through had brought her safely home to him. For a timeless interval they held each other, knowing now that nothing, not even hands on a clock, would ever separate them again. Constance and Nicola walked slowly around the large room, hand in hand, as he lovingly described the function of each piece of gadgetry. When they came to a table stacked with rectangular metal boxes connected by masses of bundled wire and lit up like a Christmas tree with glowing vacuum tubes.
1: This little jewel is my radio transmitter and receiver. With it, I hope to someday carry on conversations with any manner of
2: individual, at distances even as yet undefined. Constance's mouth dropped open and her eyes widened from the impact of his words. When she let go of his hand and steadied herself on the table, he became immediately concerned. Dear Lord Constance, what's the matter?
3: The aliens, Nicola, the ones I told you about that crash-landed at Roswell. They picked up your transmission, the one you sent from this radio. But Constance,
1: you said that they were awakened by my attempt at communication. It was only just last weekend that I finished setting the equipment up. All I've managed to send out thus far, simple tones, like nonsensical Morse code. I've made no attempt to talk to anyone.
3: But Nicola, that's just it, don't you see? In your own historical account, in papers, stories you yourself wrote, you said that you received signals from space, and in those papers, you specifically mentioned Mars as a potential source. They heard you! Just last weekend. Your nonsensical thoughts and dashes were picked up on Phobos by extraterrestrial beings. The reply? The message you receive as a reply and speak about to a skeptical world. It hasn't happened yet. Perhaps, just perhaps, my love, that time is now at hand."
2: As if her words had carried with them the power of a supplication, Tesla's receiver dial suddenly lit up and as it did, simultaneously, a series of tones started chattering from the large speaker, tones that were immediately recognizable as Morse code. Grabbing a piece of chalk from the tray on his chalkboard, Tesla began translating the transmission into words. Please help. We
7: are marooned upon the largest of two moons in orbit around the fourth planet in your solar system. I have heard your communication, and while I do not understand the message, I have deciphered the codec. I am using it for this reply.
2: Constance looked at Tesla knowingly. Nonsensical?
3: From now on, you might want to consider what you're saying when you're tapping your index finger on the table.
1: Tesla snickered. Dearest, you have the distinct advantage of having read what I have already written. A year in advance of my having written it. Don't you think you're being a little unfair?
3: Get used to it, Tesla, she said, hugging him. A reporter always checks her facts in
1: advance. Then it should be the same reporter that delivers those facts to her captive
2: audience. Reaching up, he pulled a headset from a nail in the wall and unfurled the long cord that was plugged into the front panel of the transmitter. Holding the device out to Constance, he continued, It's your exclusive and your byline, my love.
1: You and you alone should be the one to deliver the news.
2: Tentatively, Constance took the headset and put it on carefully adjusting the microphone at the end of a flexible wire so that it was positioned close to her mouth. After a moment, she looked at Tesla and nodded. Okay, Nikola, I'm ready. With a simple flip of a switch, Constance Weathersby was on the air, sending out a story like no other, before or since.
3: To my friend from another world, please listen carefully and heed my words to the letter. Whatever you do, Please do not attempt to leave the Martian moon in response to this or any other communication with planet Earth. Trust me when I say that I have witnessed the outcome of that particular course of action and it's tragic. I appeal to you. Return to your state of suspended animation and wait. I promise you help is coming. If you can hear me and understand what I'm saying, set your alarm clock for May 31st, 2124. By then there will be railroad tracks on Mars and we can come to the rescue. Telling you to sleep for hundreds of years seems like far too much for me to ask.
2: Trying as best as she could to fight back tears, she said, This is Constance Weathersby, and Nikola Tesla responding
3: to your call for help. Wait for us, please, over and
2: out. Constance removed the headset and placed it on top of the transmitter box. Sobbing, she wrapped her arms around Nikola and leaned her head against his chest. Do you think they heard me?
3: Is there any possible way that this
2: could work? Tesla gently ran his fingers through her hair. There's only one
1: way to find out, and it's parked down a flight of stairs on the other side of this mountain.
2: From high up on the mountain summit, Constance couldn't make out much other than the fact that there was a flatbed railroad car sitting unattended on the track below. More than a half hour later, after she and Nicola had managed to descend hundreds of individual rough-hewn steps chiseled out of the native rock, could she identify the cargo? The couple stepped out onto a wide, grassy flatland with a single pair of gleaming rails cutting across it, capped at the far end of the valley with a darkened tunnel archway. There before them, apparently tethered to the freight car with thick strands of rope, was an automobile. More specifically, a Tucker automobile, since the flatbed trailer plainly bore the insignia of Tucker Automotive Industries. It's a Tucker!
1: It is indeed. Not just any Tucker. This happens to be the first of its kind, a concept car that has been dubbed the Tucker Gravitron. Do you notice anything unusual about it, dearest?
3: Well, sure. A small oversight. Somebody seems to have shipped it off the line without putting any wheels on it.
2: Tesla stepped up on the trailer and pointed to where one of the tires should have been. Brightly flickering filaments of electrostatic energy twisted and curled like a mass of neon snakes beneath the oddly shaped wheel well.
1: That little oversight is your fault, Constance. Well, yours and mine. This car has no wheels because of a tiny gadget you yourself delivered to Vera Tucker. This insignificant souvenir from me was none other than a working model of an anti-gravity generator. And as I had hoped he would, Preston Tucker has put it to very good use. This little beauty operates on the same principle as the flying saucer you witnessed at Roswell. Not only can it levitate us up to Phobos, It can also be used as a conduit to transfer power back to the alien ships. In a nutshell, we no longer need to nudge Phobos back into Mars orbit. Now it's just a simple matter of recharging these capacitors and sending some well-rested aliens
2: on their way. Tesla held out his hand and assisted Constance up to the car. As he stood holding the door of the Gravitron open for her, he noticed that the locomotive of the Century Unlimited had just emerged from the tunnel and was slowly backing down the track toward them. Patting Constance on the shoulder, he said,
1: Here comes our
2: ride. Once the flat car carrying the Gravitron was coupled to the locomotive, the engineer called up to Constance and Nicola, who were now buckled in, and ready to be dispatched to the Red Planet.
9: Hold on to your hats up there. I ain't never tried to pull a freight car through a wormhole. Surfaces and aerodynamics are gonna be all over the board. So don't
2: be surprised if the ride gets a little choppy. Inside the car, Constance looked at Nicola. told oh joy, here we go again. Nicola chuckled and then kissed her on the cheek. I should think that you have gotten used to bumpy rides by now.
1: I know for certain that Pierce's horseless carriage was no walk in the park.
3: She nodded her head. Very true. I'm not sure that my backside will ever recover from that.
2: As the Century Unlimited lurched ahead and started rolling toward the tunnel opening, Tesla pressed a button on the dashboard of the Gravitron and the cabin was suddenly flooded with music. Dissatisfied with the first few selections, he continued to tap what must have been some kind of skip button. She was surprised when he skipped past one of the tracks that she identified as Always and Always.
3: Hey, wait a
1: minute. I
2: know, I know. That's our song. I'm saving it for when there's room
1: on the dance floor.
2: Outside the glass, the view suddenly winked out as they passed through the opening in the mountainside.
1: Besides, this is a very special selection of music. Every song on this playlist was handpicked by me, especially for you. From different moments across all time. As you well know, my dear, being a time traveler has its privileges.
2: As the telltale streaks of light started racing by and the train adjusted course around folded layers of space time, a familiar song began playing on the radio. Tesla leaned back in the driver's seat to listen.
1: Tonight's the night
2: we'll make history.
1: Honey, you. ...and I... ...and I'll take any risk to tie back the hands of time... ...and stay with you here... ...tonight.
2: Constance immediately recognized the song as the one that had started playing in Chicago when her taxi had passed by the Paradise Theatre. Constance could just barely make out a reddish-orange light up ahead in the distance. As this light gradually continued getting larger, she also noticed that the bright blue streaks that made up the walls of the wormhole were beginning to fade and disband, becoming evident as stars, tiny points of light still racing by overhead. All at once the voice of the engineer crackled over the speakers inside the Gravitron.
9: Okay, Dr. Tesla, in just a moment I'm going to start a countdown from ten. When the count reaches zero, I want you to take your foot and press down hard on the cable release pedal beneath the dash. When the sentry gets clear of the tunnel, we'll detach from the flat car and get the locomotive out of the way for your ascent trajectory.
2: Acknowledged. Reaching over to the passenger side, he tugged on Constance's seat belt one last time to make sure it was tightly secured.
1: We can thank Preston Tucker for this little detail, too. Any other make, and we'd be bouncing all over the place
9: in here.
2: The engineer started his count. Ten, nine, eight. Constance reached out and grasped Nikola's hand, holding on tightly.
9: Seven, six, five.
2: Tesla positioned his foot above the pedal, ready to release the car from the bonds that held it down.
9: Four, three, two,
2: one. The Century Unlimited barreled out of the tunnel and out across the Martian surface as the flat car broke free from the coupler exactly as planned. Tesla kicked the release pedal and the Gravitron slipped free of the ropes, rising up at a steep angle into the crimson sky atop glowing columns of electromagnetic energy. Out ahead of them, shrouded in a veil of Martian atmosphere and looming large and ominous, was Phobos. History was about to repeat itself. Only time would tell if it would now proceed onward, into a much different future. Tesla's expression was obviously one of deep concern. Certainly not due in any way to a lack of confidence, but moreover that the love of his life had to share in the danger that was now ahead of them. Constance, on the other hand, leaned her head on Tesla's shoulder and looked up into his face smiling, knowing now that all she had been through made this moment possible. She wasn't scared or nervous about where they were going. All that mattered now was that they were going there together. To her, the scene was perfect and almost pristine. Pressing the track selector on the radio, she cycled through the song choices until she found Fly Me to the Moon, performed by Frank Sinatra.
3: Do your worst, Mr. Tesla. Mind if I snuggle in close?
2: Wrapping his arm around her, he guided the Gravitron with one hand on the wheel, adjusting their flight path on an intercept course with Phobos. Whispering in her ear, Anything for
1: you, my love.
2: Like a page torn from an H.G. Wells novel, two saucer-shaped craft were now plainly visible along a ridge lining the upper rim of the gargantuan Stickney Crater. In both cases, it was overtly apparent that the saucers had crash-landed there, both having come to rest at the end of long, ragged gouges of rock and moon dust that must have been kicked up on impact. Tesla pushed the steering wheel of the car forward and, much like the yoke on an airplane, the graviton responded by descending in the direction of the objects.
3: Wait a minute, Nikola. This is all wrong. There were supposed to be three ships down there, not just two.
2: Rather than approach the edge of the cliff straight away, Tesla turned the wheel gradually and performed a long, sweeping flyby over the entire span of the crater while Constance searched below for evidence of a third craft. There's
3: nothing. He never received my message and ended up crashing at Roswell after all.
2: Heartbroken, Constance turned away from the scene on Phobos and buried her face in her hands.
3: He couldn't understand my warning and now nothing has changed.
2: Tesla altered his trajectory and started an approach toward the twin derelict ships lodged in the cliff wall.
1: We're here, Constance, all because of your friend from another world. Because of him, everything changes.
2: Constance and Nikola were now face to face with the unknown. Of course, there was no denying it. There, in the headlight beams of the Gravitron were two flying saucers, crippled, grounded yet still larger than life and quite undeniable. Both of these alien ships had been stranded here on Phobos for more than a thousand years, but somehow continued to display signs of life. Rows of brightly glowing portholes dotted the surface around the upper ring of the saucers, and both ships were capped with some kind of mysterious red beacon that pulsated on and off at seemingly regular intervals. Spotting a flat rock plateau off to one side of the nearest saucer, Tesla spun the wheel to the left, causing the Gravitron to glide silently beyond the edge of the deep chasm and over to the relative safety of solid ground. As their car passed close by, several electrical discharges arced across the distance between the Gravitron and the saucer and seemed to momentarily radiate the metallic surface of the hull. Interesting. He watched the wisps of current flitting to and fro around the disc.
1: Yes, this will do just fine.
2: Bringing the car to a stop, Tesla reached across to the glove box on the passenger side of the dash and retrieved a ring-shaped metal band about the size of a necklace. Sliding the band down over his head, he adjusted it over the collar of his suit coat and then twisted a small dial that was positioned beneath his neck. In response, a transparent white bubble suddenly materialized up from the band to completely envelop Tesla's head. Stay here, my love. You'll be safe
1: inside the gravitational sphere generated by the car. I need to go outside for a moment and make sure the current can flow unobstructed from here to both ships.
2: Constance watched on in disbelief as Nikola opened the car door and stepped out onto the surface of Phobos, seemingly unaffected by the harsh environment around him. You're just doing this to impress me, aren't you? To her surprise, Tesla turned around near the front fender of the Gravitron and looked at her. Are you impressed? Caught completely off guard by the fact that he could hear what she said. That
3: this car has an intercom system in it too? Yeah, Nicola, I'm very impressed. Oh, and since I have your undivided attention, be careful, would you please?
2: Always. After several minutes spent examining the feeble flow of electricity coming from the energy transfer coils, Tesla walked up to the passenger side window and tapped lightly on the glass. Constance rolled the window down partially, but stopped when she felt a sudden puff of air escape past her into space.
1: Not to worry, Constance. Only an equalization of pressure.
2: Then, blushing slightly,
1: Would you be a dear and pass me the owner's manual from the glove box, please?
2: Constance giggled as she handed him the booklet and watched him rifle through the pages until he found the operating instructions for the coil. The great
3: Nikola Tesla master of time space and energy looking for answers to the most important questions of our time in the owner's
2: manual
1: (laughs) you have a singular wit constance
2: after a moment he pointed across the cabin to the dashboard
1: there are four dials below the steering column i need you to twist the two on the left clockwise as far as they will go
2: constance found the dials in question and turned them round In response, the left side of the car lit up like a fireball, sending out thick bands of electricity that were almost instantly absorbed by the nearby saucers. Waves of discharging electrical arcs fanned out from the wheel wells of the Gravitron and were quickly consumed in some unknown fashion by the alien vessels. Ah, that's more like it. Constance and Nicola watched in amazement as both ships lifted out of the rubble they had rested on for more than a millennia and righted themselves. One of the ships, having apparently received a complete charge, drifted silently up into the field of stars overhead and remained there, hovering. The other saucer lingered close to the surface of the moon and continued drawing power from the Gravitron, seemingly needing more than twice as much of the magnetic current to replenish a depleted supply. The scene that was playing out just beyond the protective windshield glass was both grandiose and surreal so much so that Constance felt compelled to commit it to paper.
3: Here, on this tiny lump of rock, one single moment in time is now unfolding that will either destroy or define all others before or since. Helpless to intercede, I sit watching it on as Nikola Tesla stands alone like some mythical Roman gladiator facing off against the omnipresent forces of time and space itself. This man, this wonderful, compassionate, and wildly intelligent example of what the human spirit is capable of, he is literally opening a brand new doorway through which all mankind might now potentially
2: pass fluctuating violet blue current coursed over and around Tesla as he stood motionless and unyielding at the center of the electromagnetic maelstrom.
3: If I didn't know any better, I would be inclined to suspect that I am in the company of no mere mortal. Nikola Tesla is unquestionably a force of nature. Heaven help anything that chooses to stand in his way.
2: Finally, the light storm ended. As the last finite tendrils of static electricity from the Gravitron flickered and faded away, the second saucer lifted from its resting place and slowly rose to join the other. Tiny pebbles and ripples of sand were suspended inside the anti-gravity halo generated by the ship and for a moment, formed a swirling ring before scattering into the blackness of space. As if this second saucer had drawn too much power during the transfer process, A shimmering cone of cerulean light extended from the underside of the craft and almost seemed to be dripping glowing nodules of liquid luminescence. Awestruck, Constance lifted her brownie camera and peered into the eyepiece, composing an image that she was sure would land on the cover of Life magazine. Her finger poised on the shutter release button, Constance held her breath so as not to blur the shot and as she did, Tesla walked up to the edge of the cliff overlooking Stickney crater and stood there watching the ships my hero snapping the picture returning her camera to its case constance buttoned it up and stored it safely underneath her seat opening the glove box she found another of the silver necklaces like the one tesla was wearing and carefully placed it over her own head remembering how Nikola had activated his she turned the small cylindrical dial on the front of the metal band and instantly saw that her head and neck were now contained within a shimmering glass-like sphere. Feeling more than a little claustrophobic inside this strange device she quickly opened the car door and stepped out. Some kind of mechanism was clearly at work here but Constance had no idea what it could possibly be. She had read that space was cold, though she seemed to experience no temperature change as she walked up beside Tesla and took hold of his hand. The couple stood together and watched as one of the saucers drifted to the far side of the crater and paused as if waiting for something. The second ship, still emitting incandescent particles of energy, floated down below the rim of the crevasse, far down to the crater floor and then even farther still, disappearing from view over the edge of the Limtok Crater, a smaller, deeper secondary pit near the base of Stickney. Odd.
1: I wonder what they're waiting for
2: moments of tense silence ticked by as Constance and nicola waited to know the fate of the flying saucer that had vanished into the deepest darkest extent of the abyss from somewhere down inside the bowels of the bowl-shaped limb top curvature they could barely make out a shimmer of bluish light like the sporadic fluctuations given off by a welding torch across the way the first ship still hovered like a sentinel high above phobos apparently waiting patiently to know the outcome of some event just as they were all at once, there came two bright flashes from the crater floor and out of those tiny points of light flew a pair of saucers, gracefully careening end over end as they rose up into the star-filled expanse overhead. For a moment, all three saucers lined up next to each other, beacons pulsing and portholes spinning like giant toy tops. Then slowly, majestically, this recently airborne third member of the company dropped away from the others and paused near the edge of the cliff where Constance and Nicola stood watching. From somewhere in her mind, Constance heard a voice, soft and gentle, and yet infinitely clear. Thank you,
7: Constance, for everything.
2: Recognizing the telepathic transmission as being one and the same with the alien she had spoken to at Roswell, Constance started weeping tears of joy.
3: You are most certainly welcome. Several hundred years later, I guess we made it just in time.
7: Time is unalterably chronological. It is inhaled at the first and exhaled at the last. What is done with the breath in between becomes your mark upon forever. For some it is nothing more than a faint fingerprint. Others a momentous soliloquy. You and Nicola have proven the positive nature and tenacity of the human species. Through the auspices of time travel, you have influenced the destiny of all mankind. And whether you realize it or not, you have demonstrated compassion to the cosmos and argued your case to become part of a much larger galactic neighborhood. Believe me, Constance. We will never forget what you and Nikola Tesla have done for us. The kindness, compassion and tolerance you have demonstrated to an unknown alien presence is akin to nothing we have encountered on any other world. Your time has been put to good use, Constance Weatherby. The chronologists chose excellent representatives of the planet Earth.
3: Or Mars, as the case may be.
7: Or Mars.
2: As the alien ship receded back to the company of the companion saucers, Constance heard the alien speak to her one last time.
7: Here's to happy endings, Constance. The story you have written, truly a shining example. Farewell.
2: Sitting in one of several terraforming modules that now dotted the changing Martian landscape, Constance marveled at the harsh, lifeless plain on the other side of the domed glass wall, in sharp contrast to the garden that surrounded her. Lush plant life sprouted new from every corner of the vaulted room and she imagined a future where this containment and protection could be removed and life unleashed. A faint buzzing sound caught her attention and she looked across the room at a thick blanket of flowers. Honeybees darted through the air, collecting pollen for a hive that was now preserved here as well. If I didn't know
3: any better, I'd say that bee looks kind of familiar.
2: Speaking of bees,
1: I think I spotted a pair of bees' knees. And if I'm not mistaken, they look like they may be ready to go out dancing tonight.
2: Constance smiled and reached out to take his hand. Rather than taking hold of hers, Nikola produced a beautiful rose corsage from under his coat and gently slid it onto her wrist. There, a beautiful flower for a beautiful girl. Come along now, Constance. Dinner is at 8 and the train is waiting for us. Where are we going? Tesla placed his hands on either side of her face and gave her a long, passionate kiss. Then, looking deep into her bright emerald eyes to make history, Constance and Nikola decided that they should be married in New York City. Lauded by press and public for a prestigious life of invention and collaboration, Tesla was given a key to the city and ticker tape parade upon his return just days before the marriage ceremony. No one ever seemed to notice that the lonely old man that had once occupied a room at The New Yorker was never seen or heard from again. During an acceptance speech he gave that day for the key, Tesla recounted,
1: Someone much wiser than me once said, This is one of many possible worlds. All of the best, or some bizarre test? It is what it is, and
2: whatever. Time is still the infinite jest. Days later, the couple stood on the altar and exchanged vows. Rumor has it, many of the guests in attendance had taken a very special train ride to get there. As the priest proclaimed to the crowd,
5: Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Nikola Tesla.
2: Constance looked out and saw Mr. Lanfear standing at the back of the sanctuary. No longer considering him an ominous specter of an uncertain future, she held up her hand and waved to him. Tipping his fedora in return, Lanfear walked out through the doors at the back of the church and, climbing into his cherished tucker, vanished into thin air as he drove away. A single postcard remained unopened from the bundle that Nikola had given Constance more than a lifetime ago. Slowly, gently, she peeled open the sealed envelope, tattered and worn at the corners by the passage of time. Inside she found a tintype photograph of her and Nikola standing on a roof looking out at a vast cityscape. Written on the image in Tesla's own hand was an inscription. Getting Engaged Rooftop of the Paradise Theater September 14, 1928 Constance squeezed her husband's hand, knowing in her heart that this time she would never, ever have to let him go.
1: There's more. Turn it over.
2: Constance flipped the tintype and saw that Tesla had written, Tonight's the night we'll make history,
1: honey, you and I. And I'll take any risk to tie back the hands of time and stay with you here. Tonight.
2: Sticks, the best of times, 1981. Constance kissed him on the cheek. I
3: love you, Nicola. For all time.
0: Time flies, doesn't it? Flies, drives, rockets, even rides along a pair of outstretched iron rails. For the most part forward, clockwise, into what we might call that which remains to be seen. Unless you happen to be Constance Withersby, time-traveling journalist, protector of life both here and elsewhere in the dark depths of the cosmos. Illustrious titles, to be sure, though just between you and me, I hear she prefers Mrs. Nikola Tesla, in love, always and always.
2: The Century Unlimited, book two, a brief history of the future, was originally written and illustrated as a collector card set for neonmob.com by R.J. Lonsdale. Original music and audio production by Mark W. Wood of Wood Media Studio, Inc. The voice of Nikola Tesla was performed by Mark W. Wood. The voice of Constance Weathersby was performed by Nancy Cooper Wood. The voice of Mr. Lanford, the chronologer, was performed by Kevin Wittenberg, the Little Fly Girls were performed by Hannah and Amelia Lonsdale, and the voices of Howard Hughes, the Century Unlimited engineer and W. H. Preston were performed by R. J. Lonsdale. Your hostess for the Century Unlimited has been yours truly, Grace, an AI voice courtesy of Speechelo, and the opening and closing narrations are voiced by R. J. Lonsdale. This has been an RJ Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation.